Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 96 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dame, joined as always by the other voice you will hear, Matt Feuerstein. As always, you will hear Matt Feuerstein. You will never not hear Matt Feuerstein. In your darkest hour, you will hear Matt Feuerstein in your mind. Um, definitely that would be anyone's darkest hour, I have to admit. <laughs> oh, Including my own. Yeah, it's that's that's really dark, Trevor. I, I feel like almost you're going to scare the listeners away no, by I'm, I'm, how bleak of a of a picture that you're painting of life on Earth. Matt, there are plenty of people that listen to us by choice while they're at work. Well, we had like one nice person that said like they like they said something very nice in like recent months about like helping them through stuff or just you know being a comfort to people. You you are a comfort to people, Matt. We've had multiple people. Say that, oh, like, you know, this is the nice, comforting thing. You, you, you are a comfort, Matt. You, you better learn to accept it. Speak for yourself, man. <laughs> you strive to just annoy, but you, you fail. That's the one thing you fail at, Matt Feuerstein. <laughs> but, but, um, as always, just the usual plug the feeds. That's the one thing we have to plug. We got three different ways to listen. You can listen to us on YouTube, which, it's like one of the weird perks of doing this is seeing every month getting that one YouTube email that's like, oh, another few people are watching on YouTube. This is really weird because we don't do a video podcast. It's literally just listening to us in a less convenient way. But I You know it. that if you have the YouTube app and you have YouTube Plus, you can just listen to audio on the YouTube video in the background on your phone. Who gets YouTube Premium, Matt? Only psychopaths. I apologize to anyone listening that gets YouTube Premium. Uh, <laughs> I, might, I might get YouTube Premium. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, so we have the YouTube feed, we have the Through the Years feed, and we are still on the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network, which has an extensive archive of shows that aren't us that are great. I I, I've gotten to the point where I, we've been doing this a lot. I can say I grew up listening. Well, maybe I was I wasn't listening when I was that young, but I spent years of my life listening to shows on that network. So if you want to see things that informed me, go dig through the archives. Um, that brings us to the news that we cover between shows, as always, that the, between the shows that we are covering. So just uh, two or three little bits here, Matt. Uh, first thing is the Pro Wrestling Torch. Ring of Honor has announced that Brian Danielson will be moving to Philadelphia to become the head trainer of the Ring of Honor Wrestling School soon. Ring of Honor is also claim, is claiming that Austin Aries, who is the current head trainer trainer at the ROH Wrestling School, will remain a big part of Ring of Honor. PW Torch has learned the reason Aries is leaving the Ring of Honor Wrestling School is to take more bookings overseas, especially in Japan. In the past, Aries had to turn down several offers to wrestle overseas due to his commitments to the wrestling, Ring of Honor Wrestling School. Several Ring of Honor wrestlers, including Alex Shelley, Brian Danielson, and Colt Cabana, have taken bookings overseas and found themselves to be more valuable commodities on the independent scene as a result of learning different styles of wrestling that would not otherwise be exposed to the re- to wrestling the majority of time in the U.S. Aries will still assist with training students at the Ring of Honor Wrestling School as time permits. So, yeah, this was the uh, big changeover, you know, time where this was, a, you know, a time period where Danielson, you know, was the trainer. I think he's talked about at the time that, like, he's talked in the past where he doesn't see himself as a good trainer. Like, looking back at this time, that he's not good at, like, kind of... I, I think the way he's put in the past is to something to the effect of, like... He's he can teach stuff, but like he's not good at motivating guys. Like he was just kind of like if they're not coming to me, like I want to learn this. Like he's not kind of a rah rah like 
this is what you need to do. This is how to be a wrestler kind of completist like that, I imagine. I mean, you know, I don't always trust Brian Danielson when he says he's not good at something. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, teaching, there's a lot of components to it besides just knowing the skills that you're trying to impart on people. Um, but I don't know. I bet you he's better than he thinks he is. And I've said this before, I believe, on the show one time, but like this was – I've almost never in my life really wanted to be a pro wrestler. This is the one time in my life where like 5% of me consider it because Brian Danielson was my favorite wrestler. Ring of Honor was my favorite promotion. And I was like, I don't know. I, maybe I should save up some money and go to Philadelphia. But then I realized like I'm like I'm a – decent sized person in terms of i'm like six two i am not a good athlete but i'm not a terrible athlete but matt my achilles heel is i am terrified of pain and terrified of ever requiring a surgery and so the idea that like oh if i became a wrestler almost certainly one day i would get injured and almost certainly one day i would need to go under the knife and that was like well you know what i'm just gonna stay at home and eat doritos well you know staying home and eating doritos in the long run, also kind of dangerous <laughs> yeah. and might also require a much more intense surgery, in fact. Uh, I, I, Matt, I do the Doritos in moderation, maybe once every six weeks at this point. But Okay, well, the way you made it sound was like, okay, I'm just, instead of going to do anything, I'm just going to stay home and eat Doritos like all the time. Oh, oh, well, oh, well, back then, back when I had the metabolism of a young man that was 21 years old, no, definitely, the uh, the Doritos were were a frequent event, but... As you get older, you have to do less of the things you love to feel half as good as you did. When, although I know you disagree on that, I'm mad. I know. Yeah, you, I don't you, think that's uh, that's as automatic as you're making it sound like it is. I think you just happened to be in very good shape when you were younger. <laughs> no, I had not to get off and off track. I had like crazy fast metabolism when I was a teenager. Like Matt, this is serious. The, for um, there was a few, couple period. <laughs> This is embarrassing, but like when I was like 14 or 15, for two weeks, I lived off of every day I would eat either a few corn dogs or a large pizza by myself, a, a like half a container of frozen yogurt covered in chocolate syrup and some potato chips. And for like two or three weeks, that's all I ate. And I lost weight. Like I couldn't keep weight on my body. And I just. When people say like, "What's that?" Doesn't necessarily time? mean you were healthy, but yes, no, I get I what you're not, saying. No, 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 you get wrong. I, I probably had like scurvy almost, but like, I mean, that was in some ways, Matt, the best point of my life. Like, yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I think I have an opposite experience because I was pretty out of shape as a teenager, and I was, you know, didn't I really when I got to college is when I got into better shape, and I feel like now I'm in as in my late thirties in much better shape than I was when I was a teenager. So I think that it's, and feel better. So I think that it's, you know, it just really depends on who you are, but yes, yeah. generally speaking, um, when you are younger, it is, I think considered easier to stay in shape than when you're older. I, I would yeah. agree with that. Okay. Next store we have is the pro wrestling torch. Again, they write, uh, regarding newcomer Jay Fury, Sapolsky says he has a unique in-ring, in-ring style that he believes will translate well with the Ring of Honor audience. Quote, Jay Fury has a very natural charisma and connection to the fans. He says, again, quote, he does some unique, exciting moves. He doesn't look like your typical high flyer, but he is very graceful. He's done very well in FIP recently in matches versus Brian Danielson and Austin Aries, among others, and he continues to grow as a worker. 
And yeah, this is another one of those things where, you know, it, it continues to be the pattern. It feels like every show we're getting like comments from the newsletters about one of, I keep saying that basically show after show lately about like, there's either comments like indirectly to the newsletters or kids like this directly from Sapolsky. Like it's one of these crop of these new young flyers that they're really putting over. And none of them, I keep saying this, none of them will be around basically by the end of the year. So it's crazy that I still, I will continue to say it's crazy that not one of them stuck. And I, I'm, I'm looking forward to in a weird way, like seeing, knowing that all these guys still have some matches left this year in ring of honor if and knowing that they've all kind of impressed us to varying degrees like no one's been a bomb to us it'll be interesting to see like do any of them like have that vordell walker moment where they go okay that was kind of a dead performance i can see why they started to like give up on plants because so far i haven't seen anything to that degree well i i haven't really checked but like does jay fury even appear at all after um after the shows we already watched, um, um, I will have to check if you. Can yeah, I, have, I haven't checked. He might, but you know, I, I don't always remember all the undercards, especially in some of those like you know non A shows that they have. But um, yeah, I mean, I agree that Jay Fury had a good style that could have gotten over. <laughs> like I agreed with that quote, and yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes the uh, rosters just get full. I mean, unless you're AEW, in which case it's just apparently ever expanding, but. You know, in general, they just there's just not enough spots for everybody. Jay Fury works two more times for Ring of Honor in 2006. He works both halves of the Weekend of Champions double shot in the Midwest, and then that's it for him. I figured it was one of those shows. Yeah. So, so really, yeah, like he's he's hyping up here, but after that quote, he only gets like one double shot and he's in a tag match against irish airborne teaming with spud of all people and then he's in a random like six man mayhem spot fest. so he's just and, and both of those matches each are like eight minutes long a piece so you know he doesn't really get much of a chance at post this so whatever happened i don't know this, i assume like everything in life matt there's a story to it but that's that um then I guess something we should talk about. We got a delightful email uh, a couple of days ago from a listener, William Young, and he just kind of reminded us, although I knew this was coming, that this was the time when the Ring of Honor video wire started, which was basically, I think, Matt, you talked on the last episode, we were, we were talking about ROHvideos.com was their kind of thing and how you were talking about they quickly trans transitioned to just doing instead of like just a whole bunch of clips, more of like we're going to do kind of a video version of the news wire each you know, week or two. And that started before the show. And, uh, William was nice enough to send us a link to a YouTube playlist that has like a pretty good collection of all of them. So I watched the two or three ones that took place bef before best in the world. And I kind of forgot what the videos wires, exactly what their format was. And at least for the first two or three, it, it is basically clips from the most recent show that has not yet even been put on released on DVD yet. And then one very minor exclusive promo that is not going to be on the DVDs that is just on the video wire. So like, yeah, now, now am I, am I correct in remembering this, that at the beginning they were not called the video wire, they were called the video update and I then think, they became, I think it, well, yeah. And I think then they changed it after a few. Yeah. I, I think you're, you're right on that too. And, and I think they become a little bit more detailed when they become the video wire, but not so much more. Like they become, they become a little bit longer. There are some that are longer than others, but in general, I think that is pretty much the format. 
So, like, the first one is the promo. I mean, I'm not going to go into these, like, in detail going forward or even really here. But, like, the first one, the, the example of things that happen would be, like, Gary Michael Capetta's backstage with Brian Danielson. And Brian Danielson's wondering, like, oh, can I trust Samoa Joe? And so Gary's like, well, get him on on the next video wire. And then the next video wire, which has clearly been taped, like, five seconds after the first one, um, Samoa Joe steps into the room with, with Danielson and Capetta and they talk and they do a really funny corny thing where they're like, each one throws to a, a to a package of, of um, uh, like a highlight music video for, for them, for themselves. And each time it's like, you know, Joe, you know, you think you can beat me? Well, I think you should take a look at this. And it's just a bunch of clips. But then the, the one other of the three I watched, they had a, the other exclusive content was a promo from Adam Pierce on CZW, which did have the one funny line where he, where he's talking about CZW. And of course, CZW's big thing was calling themselves like ultra violent. And Pierce at one point goes, what does ultra violent even mean that you glow in the dark? And I thought that was kind of a good, like dumb jock energy comment, but he thought ultra violent was ultra violent. Matt. <laughs> Ultraviolet rays. <laughs> that would be a cool like gimmick that they had. Ultraviolet rays that they gave off, or just a oh, or a good or a good name for like a tag team where like both wrestlers are named Ray. <laughs> that was the original name of the of the Dudleys. It was going to be Bubba Ray, and then um, sign Ray, Ray. Ray Mysterio. <laughs> yeah, the original Dudley boys, Ray Mysterio and Bubba Ray Dudley. The ultraviolet rays. <laughs> so that brings us to a slightly less ultraviolet show, Best in the World, which took place March 25th, 2006 at Basketball City in New York City in front of a reported crowd of 1,050 fans. Uh, Dave Meltzer would write in The Observer, it was the best crowd ring of honors ever done in New York, but that's also because the other buildings they played in haven't been able to put nearly this many people in. All the matches that had time were three stars or more with many different types of matches. We will be the judge of that, Dave Meltzer. Um, the Torch would add, they would talk to Gabe Sapolsky, the Torch would write, Ring of Honor booker Gabe Sapolsky tells PW Torch that he is thrilled with the buzz Ring of Honor is getting in the Manhattan, New York market after drawing over a thousand fans last Saturday, which was well above their previous draw there. Quote, I think the word is definitely spreading through New York City about Ring of Honor, he says. I believe we would have broken over a thousand for Joe versus Kobashi, but the building couldn't hold it. Our goal now is to keep presenting the kind of shows that create a buzz and get people to keep coming back while bringing in new people. There's no telling what the possibility for attendance might be. Sapolsky also has high hopes for Ring of Honor's upcoming triple shot during WrestleMania weekend. Quote, my expectations for the triple shot are that these will be the three best shows Ring of Honor has ever put on. And then I guess maybe a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of hype. But I, I you know, I, we will t review those very shortly. But I, you know, I think he's not necessarily wrong. But a few weeks after those shows happened, the Torch would report again, quote, Ring of Honor management considers the uh, March 25th, March 30th, March 31st, and April 1st events easily the best events in the entire history of the company. So, Matt, that's something that we should, I guess, keep in mind as we uh, review this show and the next uh, three after it is, are these, do we agree, are these the four best shows we've seen in Ring of Honor history thus far? Yeah, I mean, I guess we'll, I mean, we, we'll talk about this one at the end of this one, but, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, 
I mean, I don't want to spoil anything, but because I haven't really re- rewatched them. But my recollection is that those Chicago shows are indeed, the, in the like, in a lot of ways, yeah. the best shows ROH has ever done. That is how I remember it at that point. I mean, so yeah, this was you know a big success for Ring of Honor in terms of you got over a thousand fans. You got your, you know, you, you didn't suppose have- supposedly supposedly over a thousand fans. That's what they said. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you always take everything with a grain of salt. And Matt, were you at Basketball City? Were you doing the seat count, Matt? I didn't. wasn't doing the seat count, but I, I was there. And um, as I mentioned on the last Basketball City show, Steel Cage Warfare, when I got general admission tickets, which I usually do because I'm a man of the people, I um, uh, they were bad seats, and I couldn't really see anything that was happened on the mat. So this time, I was I changed my game plan, and I got second or third row seats and i had a much better experience at basketball city this time than i did the first time fancy that but uh we open with a still shot of bj whitmer at the end of the last show as a gay voiceover recaps the end of that show describing how a czw army gay refers to as barbarians ruined ring of honor's debut at ecw arena Gabe says that after much debate, Ring of Honor has decided to show us what happened after they cut off the last show, which they cut off right at the point of John Zandig just beginning a promo. Gabe warns us that it is graphic and not for everyone, but is being shown to us to show us the animalistic nature of the CZW army. So at this point, the promo starts. We get a sweary, hard to decipher John Zandig promo that he's shitting on Ring of Honor. He stops multiple times trying to kick BJ Whitmer pretty hard in the back. Uh, Zandig says this is just the start. The Ring of Honor fans in the building start to loudly chant boring. We cut to outside the building where Ring of Honor students are still getting into it with CZW or CZW wrestlers just as they were at the end of the last show. And Bobby Dempsey is loudly saying he will, quote, kick your fucking ass one-on-one, bitch. He is pissed. We cut back to the building. We can. Wow, that is that is not the biggest. That is not the most dynamic quote. Yes, we can barely make out what Zandig is saying as CZW continues to run rampant. We cut back outside where Bobby Dempsey tells someone. This is the quote Matt was alluding to. He'll ass rape them. So uh, this is something that you'd think they would edit off the DVD. Um, But anyway, I'll have more to say about this when uh, Trevor is done recapping. Uh, we cut back to the ring where Zandig powerbombs Whitmer and more CZW wrestlers beat down BJ before they leave the ring. Zandig bashes an Ring of Honor ring sign with his barbed wire baseball bat. And then we cut to outside my favorite moment of this segment where Rhett Tyus screams, that's right, motherfuckers, Ring of Honor. Ah, ah. <laughs> I just started laughing. It was like the growls. At the- I'm not used to like Rhett Titus, you know, addicted to love Rhett Titus. Being that angry, it was pretty funny. Anyway, cut back to Whitmer alone in the ring as he tries to recover. Blood on his face, CZW spray paint on his back. All as the CZW theme blares over the PA. A voiceover from Gabe tells us that BJ won't be on tonight's show due to the injuries inflicted on him at this previous show. He said, Gabe says Ring of Honor wants revenge, and they're putting out an open call for any CZW wrestlers to show up tonight, saying that unlike CZW, the entire locker room won't jump them, and the numbers will be even. Gabe says they will let CZW issue any challenge they want, and it will be answered, calling tonight CZW's free pass. So uh, that's the segment. Matt, overall, I thought, you know, we really talked a lot about the, the most of the rest of the segment that aired at the end of uh, Arena Warfare, the last show. I was a pretty big fan of that segment. I feel like this was kind of like 
not as good as that. You could have left this on the cutting room floor. This was kind of diminishing returns. You know, the the Zandig promo, you couldn't really decipher much of it. The, the more exciting part was just the initial flood of guys and, you know, the weed whacker and the, you know, spray painting. This is just kind of the aftermath. Well, I thought this would have been much better if they edited out literally every single thing involving the ROH students. No offense to any of them, but that was a complete, like, waste of, like, DVD time. Like, it added nothing. And Shane Hagedorn mentioned on an honorable mention, a lot of the stuff that the people they were yelling at were just, like, fans. Like, they were just arguing with fans outside. And it's like, what, what did that add to anything? And, yeah, that that comment by Dempsey, like... You know, I get it. You know, they were young kids and, you know, being stupid in the heat of the moment. But, like, even in 2006, you'd be like, okay, this doesn't really need to be on our DVD. Because um, didn't that, like, actually start, like, people chanting that after he said it? Um, but certainly wouldn't make it – wouldn't make the cut of a wrestling show now. But, um, yeah, I, I just thought that the cutting back and forth to the students made this whole thing a little bit less effective. As far as what was actually happening in the ring – yeah, it was fine. I think it was good to kind of hear a little bit from Zandig because he sort of is the leader and it was sort of a little bit mission statement. Like he says, this isn't that internet bullshit. This is real, you know, stuff like that. I think, I think that that's kind of good, you know, not totally necessary, but I think it, it added more than it detracted. But overall, I think that the, uh, I mentioned this last time, but especially on this, on this, uh, segment, the, the stuff outside really felt like Bush League to me. <laughs> Especially because like if you did if you just came into the show and didn't watch Arena Warfare, it's just like a random cutaway. Like you don't really get the full context of why they're what they're even cutting away to, which is, you know, in the last one that a bunch of the Ring of Honor wrestlers end up brawling to the outside with a bunch of the uh CCW guys. If this happens, you're just literally like seeing a John Zandig segment and then randomly cutting to like Ring of Honor students screaming at people you can't really see. <laughs> like Yeah, it it was it was it was, it was like, I mean, that's the only way I could really describe it. It felt completely amateur hour. But, you know, I, I think I like the stuff in the ring a little bit better than you did, but I really didn't yeah. like that other stuff. Uh, and that brings us to the top five rankings. We get another top five rankings video. Enjoy them while they can, because I, as always, I've been reading ahead on like, um, I read ahead months and months and months when I do notes, or at least I try to. And I don't know how far ahead it is, but I, we, I've already gotten to the point in writing up my notes of a future show where they're like, yeah, Ring of Honor is giving up on the top five rankings again. So enjoy these while we can, Matt. Um, top five rankings for this episode would be number five, Samoa Joe. Number four, Alex Shelley. Number three, Christopher Daniels. Number two, Jimmy Yang. And number one, Roderick Strong. Now, am, so I cor- am I correct that they really just update it every month, so this would have been the same as what was on Arena Warfare? Um, Was Samoa Joe in the top five last time? I'm not sure. I will double-check and bring it up in a minute. But yeah, anyway. either way, it, it is kind of weird when you don't update every show. If you're if you're just a nerdy viewer that is buying every DVD, like we were in the day, because it's like Jimmy Yang and Roderick Strong faced off on the last show when Yang was two and Roderick was one, and you know Yang loses, and it's still Jimmy Yang number two. So it was like, yeah, yeah the top five was exactly the same at a Okay, yeah, yeah. I think they just updated for each month. 
And so that brings us to the two dark matches that obviously did not make the DVD, or otherwise they wouldn't be dark matches. The first one, I thought this one was a little bit interesting for longtime Ring of Honor fans. Mitch Franklin, Ring of Honor student, defeated Mike Tobin, which, you know, really longtime listeners or big-time, you know, indie fans will remember as one half of the Boogie Nights, Matt. Yeah, that, that's got to be a long, long time between shows between the last time he appeared, which was probably well only the first few Ring of Honor shows. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a this. four four year gap for for Tobin. I'm and thinking the, I'm thinking probably summer of 2002, if I remember correctly. I'm not positive about that, but that's my recollection. Yeah, they they were not long for the world. They were one of those many acts that just kind of started off and didn't really gain traction. Um, and then we had a. Dark Four Corner Survival Match, Bobby Dempsey defeated Keenan Quinn, Shane Hagedorn, and Smash Bradley. So that brings us to the actual opener of the show that we did get to see. Jimmy Ray, scored to the ring by Prince Nana, defeated Pele Primo via pinfall in a minute 57 after he hit greetings from Ghana. And I guess this part we did not see on the DVD, though. Dave Meltzer wrote in The Observer, it started with Bruce Leroy, Ty Mack, apologies if I'm getting that pronunciation wrong. Yeah, I, I heard I heard Shane Hagedorn say it was Bruce Leroy, but I, I'm I'm not uh, no, I'm I'm not an expert on him, so I don't know for sure. Yeah, I'm not. I, I need to brush up on my old like cult action films, but uh, either way. Of Last Dragon fame coming out, and he got a reaction that stunned everyone. Rafe squashed Pele Primo and then challenged Leroy. Um, pretty sure he used to hang around at the early UFCs because I could swear I saw him when Tank Abbott was a big star, watching Abbott and knowing that a good boxer would destroy his wild haymakers. I love that Dave. That's just a classic Dave tangent where it's just like he has to, she has to throw in that he like. He has good analysis about things. <laughs> it's just like, oh, I remember him. He was at a UFC and made an offhand comment, so I will include that. You know, very much Dave's mind, which is kind of just, you know, it's sometimes Dave's mind is the equivalent of like clearing out a fridge to make like soup out of leftovers, where it's just like you're grabbing everything that's there. Doesn't matter if it goes together. You're just putting it in the pot. It's just like these are the thoughts I have on him. They're all going out there. But Matt. I don't know if we actually saw um, Rave make a challenge to him. So I don't know if that was just an interpretation of what we end up seeing or if maybe there's a little bit edited out. But uh, either way – I think there was some stuff edited out. Yeah. Either way, what we do see is this squash match. Um, It's funny because they mentioned that it was for um, ROHvideos.com and I'm just like, yeah, I'm sure this would hook a lot of people. (laughs) This this one-minute squash match. It seems like a lot of the Ring of Honor, like maybe all of the ROH video stuff during this brief time where they would upload matches, they were all basically squashes for their big stars. Or, or there was you know. one pretty cool squash they have later in the year, but even that was a squash. Yeah, it's now. I, yeah. So I was going to ask you, what do you think about that? Because you can look at it two ways, right? Like on one end, you can say. Ring of Honor was, you know, as Gabe would always say, a DVD product. At this point, that was one of their two big revenue streams along with uh, ticket sales. And so the idea of giving away any big match, if that stops someone from buying a DVD, that could be a bad thing. But on the other hand, you could argue, yeah, what you just said basically, which is are squash matches really going to convert anyone that's not already a Ring of Honor fan? Like that's not really like – Ring of Honor is the kind that does almost no squash matches. That's not really indicative of what Ring of Honor is. It isn't going to impress people. I know that in later years when it became easier to do so once like YouTube and video sites became more prevalent, I would notice that a lot of indie companies when they – like ones that weren't really that big on the map, when they did have one match that would come 
like catch fire they wouldn't hold it back they would like oftentimes more often than not release that for free on youtube so at least among a smaller indies that maybe just trying to get noticed when they would have a big match they would kind of do the opposite they'd be like we're going to give you the thing that you probably might be tempted to pay money for we're going to give it to you for completely free just trying trying to maximize the eyeballs on this i mean the only thing i could think of is that when they put these matches that you know didn't have a lot of demand on the uh on the roh video site it wasn't really because they expected it to create a lot of buzz but more just like oh we'll throw it up and we'll see how it does just to kind of test the waters on this video thing to see if we can grow it you know as opposed to actually thinking that it was gonna do anything to affect business in any way you know yeah um so yeah, before the squash, there's a huge toilet paper shower. We get our usual die, Jimmy, die chair. It takes forever to clean up the toilet paper in the ring before this match. Uh, Prezak on commentary says, this is truly a milestone show for Ring of Honor, marking almost a year of running New York and the first time they've broken 1,000 fans in Manhattan. Matt, you, you, when you were watching this before me, you kind of, cause we talked about it on a recent show, I asked like, you know, how we talked about how this is part of the milestone series of shows, which was a seven show string for Ring of Honor, where every show was kind of a different milestone. And this was the one show I couldn't figure out what the milestone was. And so you watching this, you quickly said to me, I guess this is like their tenuous milestone that they've a been in New York almost a year. And two, this is the first time they've broken a thousand fans in New York, in Manhattan, not even New York, because wasn't the first year anniversary show in New York the Elks Lodge? It, I think it was. Been, it was, yes, but it, I, I don't. It, that it, that, that did not have a thousand people, but yes, okay. it was. Yes. So, um, yeah, this is just a squash. Jimmy Rave isn't really a squash kind of guy. He doesn't hit many big moves here. He mostly just attacks with punches. Pele, though, he's great at selling, almost too great, especially with how quickly he goes to, like, really looking like he's dead, like, just struggling to get to his feet after just a few blows. But for a small student, it works. He gets one real spot to shine, which he, he hits a springboard crossbody. He then takes a spear from Jimmy Rave that he makes look like a million bucks. He just takes a great spear here. And, yeah, there's not much to this, is there, Matt? No, it's a squash match. Yeah, so I, that's why I didn't even throw to you because I don't even really consider this like a full match to review. Um, it was fine, like, you know, yeah. if it has a squash match, yeah. but nothing to say about it, really. Uh, Nana gets on the mic immediately after the match to gloat. He gets his usual incredibly loud shut the fuck up chant. He gets into it with one fan. He calls that fan a piece of shit, which for some reason, Nana calling someone like just nakedly a piece of shit. For some reason, I was like, whoa, did not expect that from Nana, although I'm sure he's done that before. Um, Nana says that uh, Ray, Jimmy Rave deserves to be a champion, and no one can take him out. When he points out Bruce Leroy, who is uh, sitting at the timekeeper's table, we get a Leroy chant. And Nana says he thought Leroy was Chinese. <clears throat> Jimmy Yang runs to the ring with Nana fleeing. Yang bows to Leroy. Rave attacks Yang, and we have an impromptu match. Jimmy Yang defeats Jimmy Rave via pinfall in 6 minutes, 32 seconds, using a crucifix. Um... Matt, so I guess this is our, like, our first meaty, even, even this isn't really that meaty, it's six and a half minutes, but what do you think about this, especially knowing that, you know, we're supposed to be heating up Jimmy Yang for a title match with Danielson, I would say, at, starting around this point. I think, um, in this match, Yang looked as good as he has so far. Um, I felt, it felt like it was quick and it was fun. To me, it felt almost like, like a TV match in a good way. You know, they didn't waste time. They, uh, you know, they, they, Yang showed fire right off the bat and the crowd was really into him, which helped. The crowd was really hot, uh, for most of this show. And I think that helped a lot of things, 
kind of uh, come across better than they necessarily would have otherwise. But yeah, I thought it was a fun match. You know, Rave worked over the neck. Yang came back and did some and um, did some moves, and then Yang kind of hurt his shoulder uh, by running into the ring post. there was a few spots with Nana. Yang jumps off the apron with a spin kick on Nana, which I I kind of noticed this over the past few shows. Nana has been pretty good at finding fun ways for baby faces to attack him during a match. Like I feel like in a lot of his matches that happens in, in just various ways, and I think he's particularly good at that. Um, yeah, there I is the rave match with Danielson at the fourth anniversary show. I thought like I've been noticing lately too, like a little more of this, like oh Nana's like getting pretty good at picking the spots, you know. Yeah, and like, I think he I did agree. a good job in this one too. There was one spot that I thought was kind of silly, um, which was after Rave ducked the kick, he hit the ropes and hit his spear on Yang, and Yang does this really gratuitous like spin sell, which I don't <laughs> think is necessarily the best way to sell a spear, but it was amusing. Um, and, you know, even the the ending, you know, Yang, it was a pretty sudden crucifix pin combo, but yeah, I mean, I think this was as much as I've enjoyed a Yang singles match so far. It wasn't great, but I thought it was fun. You like this a lot more than me. I thought this was a weird match. You'd think Yang would get a lot of offense, and he does get some bursts. I thought it was really Rave who controlled this match, and I thought just based on, like, the story of it and knowing what they're setting up Yang, I thought Yang would have controlled more. Um, I also thought it was weird that Yang wins kind of out of nowhere against the flow of offense, where he just, you know, like, R- Rave is beating him down, and... Yang just gets a counter like crucifix for the quick flash pin. Um, Nana did cheat to help Rave, which, and I did think that spot you talked about where um, Nana gets on the ring apron and Yang jumps off the top rope and hits him with a kick as he's staying on the ring apron. I thought that was the spot of the match. Um, But I thought this was a, for a guy you're building for a tell shot, this did not to me make him look like a world beater. I didn't think it was that interesting of a match. It was neither long enough to feel really substantial nor really like action packed enough to be exciting for like a short match. I mean, I thought it was average. I didn't hate it, but I just definitely did not see it. This is like, Oh, this is Jimmy Yang's best performance or something. I I just thought it was very average. I guess the big disagreement is I thought it was pretty action packed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe I just, you know, Matt, there's always a chance I was grumpy the day I was watching, but actually, I don't know. I don't think I've been grumpy lately. So you know what? You you are, you just, you are always in a good mood, Trevor. So I don't (laughs) think that's ever the problem. Um, immediately after the match, Rave and Nana beat Yang down until Bruce Leroy enters the ring, taking off his shirt and taking out Nana with a high kick. Rave ducks a big spin kick and bails to the outside as the crowd chants for Leroy. He helps Yang up and the crowd gives a big round of applause. Well, and I wrote my notes, well, the crowd really liked Bruce Leroy at least. Yang gets on the mic and thanks Bruce and asks, who's the master? Who's the baddest? Who's the prettiest? And Bruce seems tickled by this tribute and we quickly cut away. So I, um... I think they cut away because Yang issued like a challenge to a match that wasn't approved by the booker. So I think they, they cut that out of the, it was like to like a tag match with Bruce Leroy, which obviously never happens. Um, but yeah, I, when I was there live, I sort of felt a little bit uncool because like, I haven't really, I haven't seen the last dragon. I'm not up on yeah. that kind of stuff. So I was I'm like, sure I didn't really lose blue Bruce Leroy. No offense to him. Didn't really mean much to me like so i was like wow these people really love this guy and i just am completely unaware i'm yeah, completely mean, ignorant of who this is or why he's cool i mean as i understand it like last dragon is, is like a cult hit but like yeah. you know it, it is not a giant i don't think like 
<laughs> you know, people reacted. I mean, I'm, I, I don't want to oversell, but he was very over in this building. You know, it did not. He was. Like it was like five people that liked him. It was no. most people, and then Matt Feuerstein in row two or three, going, "I wish I knew." <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Like I felt, I, I felt left out. Yeah. Um, but um, but I, everything in this match was pretty over. Like I mean, I, I think you have to admit, even if you wasn't weren't crazy about Jimmy Yang's performance, he was very over on this show. No, and I and I think just him interfering on like Bruce's behalf when you know, like I just feel like this worked out the way celebrity stuff should. Where I felt like Yang did get a little bit of a rub here because yes. you know they like the celebrity and then they're like, hey, this guy's like sticking up for the celebrity. He's having a fun interaction with them after the match, and you know this is one of the ways where like a celebrity can legit give a little bit of a you know not not huge rub, but like a bit of a rub to a wrestler when you just do it right and do it simply, but. Next, we bring us that brings us to the four corner survival match. Allison Danger defeated Daisy Hayes, Lacey, and Mercedes Martinez, making her Ring of Honor debut in ten minutes thirty one seconds. When Danger pinned Lacey with an Oklahoma roll, roll, I'll go first to the Observer. Dave wrote from the live reports, said to be really strong and the best women's match ever in the promotion. Fans were unhappy with the finish because it was clear they thought Martinez was the star of the match and got over great in the female tough guy role. Um, Matt, I thought this was one of the more feel-good matches we've ever – not one of the best matches, but one of the better, more feel-good moments we've seen in Ring of Honor in a while, maybe in the history of through the years. Um, up to this point, I, I felt like women always get a raw deal in Ring of Honor. We've talked about extensively, but, you know, and they would get a raw deal at many points after this. But so many nights, either commentary pervsed on the women, or they patronized them by over-complimenting them, or the fans were into the match, or they had sexist chants of their own, or the match was shortchanged on time. This was one of the first women's matches in Ring of Honor, I felt like, Matt, where it did not, not only did it feel like the women got a fair shot, it felt like everyone there was supporting them. Like One of? One of the first times? Um, yeah, yeah, you're probably right. Like, I'm, I'm just, I always try and protect myself, Matt, because my memory is so bad that I try and be intentionally vague in case there's like one women's match I'm forgetting. What would you say is like the most serious women's match they've booked before this? Like, oh, would it be? <sighs> maybe one of, before? honestly, maybe one of the really early ones, honestly, with like Sumi Sakai and Simply yeah. Luscious or something. No, but like, that, not that they were the best, but like, in terms of take, treating them seriously. But like, cause I remember there was one, I don't even remember who was in it at this point, but like, like that they were trying to have a serious match, but the whole match was Mark Nolte talking about like, yeah, isn't it crazy that these women aren't just hits and ass? Like, you know, yeah, that, and like that was the, that was the entire, uh, you know, so like, this was the only women's match that was completely presented in a appropriate and respectful way by everyone involved. The only one so far. Yeah. So going, yeah, I completely agree. And again, going to the, uh, the point about everyone supporting them, the crowd was very hot for them at times. I would say boring on generous, not that there's anything wrong with that, but they were, you know, it was like refreshing where so often you see, you know, the women's matches, you know, have to really earn everything they get. And some, this was something where, you know, there was, this was like a crowd, that was reacting to them the way you'd react to like wrestlers you already really know and love where, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of giving generous reactions where you're prop popping pretty big for basic exchanges at some points. Um, 
the commentary is Dave Prezak and Lenny Leonard who play things straight, which, you know, is something that most Ring of Honor women's matches at this point haven't had. They bring up the, the women's shimmer history when appropriate. I think this was even kind of sold as a shimmer offer match. Um, and they don't, and they don't act shocked that the women are good wrestlers, right? Like they, they're not like, can you believe how good they, these women are? They're just like, yeah. oh, these women, they're wrestlers. Like that, I mean, that's it. The best compliment I can give to this is it felt like, like a shimmer match, you know, like it felt like this is, they were treating it close to what they would have treated these four if they were having the same match in shiver. And like even, even Gabe gets in on the action because at one point, Prezak kind of half walks back a boast where he, he's, he's plugging one of the main events of a, one of the early shimmer cards, which was just starting up at this point, you know, trying to sell some DVDs. And then Prezak kind of adorably, like you say, like some people are saying it's one of the best women's matches in North America ever. And then he kind of walks it back. He says, I'm like, well, of, recent years or so and then gabe actually like gets on commentary jacks he's like like you know you're you were right the first time like even gabe is like just being supportive here and probably also trying to help sell some dvds but it just felt like on this night in this match everyone involved from the crowd to the booker to the announcers they all really want these women to succeed and they actually got a fair shot for once which maybe we shouldn't be like so <laughs> like grateful for that you know it's lowered expectations but I mean, my expectations have been lowered, Matt. So uh, the match itself, I would say, is a decent four-way. Lacey and Daisy do some grappling early. I feel like Daisy is often one of the stance of these matches. She's the one that's really willing to fly. She does another big dive to the floor here. She takes a hellacious bump, just getting tr- like dropped toehold onto the bottom rope hard by Allison Danger. She just takes that bottom rope really hard. Um, later, Allison swings Daisy into a barricade, and then Allison Danger loses balance and like knocks into the cameraman, which made the camera shake. And it wasn't intentional, but I love those kind of moments because it just reminds you, oh, like wrestling's a physical thing. You know, it things you can bump into people, you can knock people over. Um, Fairly deep into this match, I then noticed that Mercedes Martinez was the only person in this match not getting decent match time. And I thought, oh, that's weird because she's like the one debut that's never had a match here before. And then that all the change, which with the clear highlight of the match, something I, cl- I was so impressed by, I clipped on uh, uh, the video of it and put it on Twitter a while ago and it got lots of, you know, people praise people like really enjoyed getting a clip of this but it's a hot tag mercedes takes a tag into the match and she does her own version of the three amigos where she does a suplex but then a brain buster and then a german suplex on Lacey, and then she hits a huge spine buster on daisy and the crowd goes absolutely bonkers to this it's the loudest pop i would say of the entire night so far at least on on the same level of like the top bruce leroy reactions and it's about as good of a hot tag as i've seen in ring of honor period for a while and it, it was just one of those things where it was one of those moments where, like, you watch the clip, and she hits one move, and the crowd's kind of into it, and then she hits a second, and they get more. And it's like every move, they're getting louder and louder and louder and losing their minds. And it's just a really – it's just a really cool moment. And I, I feel like if you get – if you're in a f- random undercard four-way and you get one of those moments in, in a four-way, like, you should be pretty happy because that, that was a memorable moment that really, you know, got the crowd on their feet. Um, I thought overall this was a strong above average, um, bordering on just being outright like three star good four way. I mean, it, it, there, there's some roughness to some of the work as you'd expect for, you know, women at this period that were still having a hard time getting like regular bookings with lots of ring time. But I thought it was good for what it was. The, the finish I disliked though, Matt, because this is the kind of finish 
I normally just like this kind of finish where Mercedes has Lacey taken out with the fair fisherman's buster, but she's not legal. So the ref won't count the pin. Alice in danger this whole time is just selling in the corner. So then at this point, Daisy comes off the top. She takes off, takes out Mercedes Martinez with a missile drop kick, but then she sells herself from the impact of like landing from the, of the missile drop kick. And then danger just kind of like recovers a bit walks to Lacey, does the Oklahoma roll and get the win. And I'm my, one of my pet peeves is I don't like the idea. I don't usually like the finish of a match where like one person is just there selling being out and then everyone else kind of beats each other up. And then the person that was kind of out of it just kind of walks in the race like, oh, I guess I'll win the match now with the, just going for a pin. I, I think that finish works if it's a heel doing it to get cheap heat. But Allison Danger was not a heel here. But overall, you know, I really enjoyed this just for the overall vibe of this match. Yeah, I um well, first of all, just to um going back to like the last serious women's match, I think probably a year earlier at Back to Basics, there was a match with Allison Danger, Cindy Rogers, Daisy Hayes and Lacey, and I think that was probably the closest to this. I mean, that was nowhere near on the same league as this match because I like this match a lot more than you did. I thought this was the best four-way match in ROH period in a long time. Um, just in terms of getting over, being entertaining, having good momentum. I agree with you about the finish. I, I thought it was a legitimately bad finish, just too abrupt. D- the match was building to something better than that. Um, but the match itself, well, first of all, so the Mercedes Martinez moment that you mentioned. So this is honestly one of the most memorable things for me, like going to this show live was that moment. Like I never forgot that. And I had never seen Mercedes Martinez at all before this. I'm not even sure if I'd heard of her. And, uh, she made such an impression on that crowd. Like she's been one of my favorites ever since. And I've been rooting for her to get, you know, on, on TV and become a big star. And like, it actually stunned me that ROH didn't do more with her after this. Like, I I just didn't understand it. And I don't know, maybe it was, she wasn't interested. I, I honestly, I don't know the story, but she just got so over and she looked so awesome in this. But I thought the, you know, the other ones, um, you know, they, they kind of, I mean, they, I think she was definitely the standout, but they did a, they did a good job. You know, um, Lacey was doing a great job being a heel. Daisy was, I think, still getting used to being a heel. Um, she yeah. wasn't really doing a lot of heelish stuff until at one point she was, um, teasing a dive and then fine, and she got the crowd to cheer it. And then finally she kind of said, nah, I'm not going to dive and flip her off. And then Mercedes, comes behind her and like makes her dive by shoving her off the top rope onto Lacey and Alice in Danger. I thought that was a really good spot. Um, I thought there was a lot of fun stuff in this match, and um, except for the finish, really. The other thing that I really liked, we don't get to hear it too much in ROH, and I, I haven't really watched a lot of Shimmer in a long time, but I really loved Alice in Danger's entrance music. I wish we could have gotten more of that. But you yeah. know... I don't know if you noticed this. Mercedes got a good reaction just for like on her entrance. So definitely the crowd knew her. Yeah. It, it, I wonder if I, it is really a, I, I thought that same thing you did, Matt, which is like, why didn't she get more of a shot in ring of honor? And the only thing I think I can think of is it seems like the people that the women that ring of honor did give like any semblance of what we would consider at the time, like <clears throat> a women's push in ring of honor would be women that could pull double duty as like, managers so maybe to save costs because they're always on the road so like lacy you know with lacy's angels and daisy hayes with now with the embassy and allison danger with christopher daniels but my thought is well couldn't you put mercedes martinez with somebody i maybe they didn't think she could carry the end of the mic work but i was like 
why couldn't you stick her at this point with the Rottweilers or with Generation Next or someone like that, you know? Yeah, I mean, for whatever reason, they didn't put... I mean, I don't know how anybody in the back could have watched this match and not thought that Mercedes Martinez was the standout. I mean, even the Observer, even the live reports, like Dave is even... like Clearly, it made enough impression that even the people that just write into Dave are like, you know, this was great, and Mercedes Martinez was the star of this, but... yeah. <clears throat> Pardon me, jeez, frog in my throat. But um, so that's two matches in a row that I liked significantly more than you did. Mm-hmm. Will it be a trend? See, maybe I am grumpy. I don't think I'm grumpy. You're just I'm always in a good mood. Maybe I am grumpy, but I like them. I mean, okay, I did not like the the Yang match at all. I liked the the women's match quite a bit, just as an overall package. I thought it was a fairly good match, but yeah, I probably did not like it as a nuts and bolts wrestling match as much as you. But I just loved the entire like vibe of that match and, and Mercedes Martinez's individual performance. Uh, that brings us to Chris Hero and Necro Butcher defeating Jason Blade and Kid Mikazi in 47 seconds when Hero made Mikazi tap out to a choke in what would be Mikazi's final Ring of Honor match. Um, as Blade and Mikazi make their entrance, Chris Hero and Necro Butcher make their way to the ring. Hero grabs the mic. The crowd chants, fuck you, Hero. Necro covers his ears like he doesn't want to hear it, which I thought was adorable. A couple people throw toilet paper at Hero as he mentions hearing something about Ring of Honor's free pass policy for CZW wrestlers tonight. Hero challenges Blade and Mikazi and awesomely ends his mic work by pointing to Blade and saying, Necro, kill, to start the match. The result is a very short squash where Necro batters Blade on the outside, including slamming him onto a chair. How many well, ROH shows have two squashes? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, – truly, Matt, this is uh, why Ring of Honor is best in the world. But um, <laughs> Hero beats Mikazi clean with a choke. After the match, Necro get, continues to attack Blade as the crowd chants, get the fuck out. Hero's back on the mic. He says he'll get out when he damn well pleases. He then tells us there's an asshole that's been running his mouth for far too long, and he calls out Adam Pierce, calling him a pussy. Pierce appears out of nowhere from behind in brawling gear. In other words, jeans and a t-shirt. He takes out Hero. The ref rings the bell for another impromptu match. Now, the funny thing here, Matt, is Matt, is... Looking at Cage Match, Cage Match has this written down as Adam Pierce versus Chris Hero went to a no contest in three minutes, ten seconds. This really just felt like Adam Pierce and Necro Butcher went to a no contest. Right. Hero, Hero was barely involved. You know, this is where ROH's whole thing about not having commentary when there aren't like official matches kind of hurts them because they could have just explained what was going on on commentary, but they always have the commentators completely lay out for stuff like this. And it's, I'm not a fan of that uh, of that policy. Yeah, so really, this is just a three-minute Pierce-Necro match. The two brawl into the crowd. They exchange chair shots. At one point, the cameraman is so close to them in the crowd that it appears that Pierce hits the cameraman with a chair on the backswing. And I just wrote my notes, poor cameraman taking a beating tonight. Because I think it might have been the same guy that, like, um, Allison Danger knocked into <laughs> on the last match. But, um... They make their way back to ringside and fight a little more before Pierce slams Necro through a table, at which point Hero appears, reappears, he attacks Pierce. They go back inside the ring, Hero kicks Pierce in the balls, and the ref calls for the bell for the rare, I assume, Ring of Honor DQ, but then Bobby Cruz says that the match has been ruled a no contest. So. Yeah, it's very, very weird. And that, yeah. that, that stuff is, that's like, quote, sports entertainment finish type stuff. 
Sherilyn Butcher, and I should, we should note that Butcher now has a nasty gash on his leg, presumably from the table break, puts the boots to Pierce as Hero gets back on the mic and says he's not done. He'd like to call somebody else out. We get a huge Joe chant. Hero says, think again, morons. He says he's calling out a student of his, his tag team partner, his best friend. He asks him to get out here and help him finish the job. This person does not show up immediately, so then he gets Hero gets back on the mic and he yells, Claudio Castagnoli, get your ass out here. Claudio appears in tights and a t-shirt, looking confused. He watches Hero and Necro attack as they encourage him to join the fight. But instead, Claudio takes out Necro and Hero to a nice pop. Hero and Necro immediately and cowardly escape through the crowd as Claudio gets on the mic and says, Fuck CZW, you're looking at the next Ring of Honor pure champion. We get a big Ring of Honor chant. And Pierce takes the mic and asks Kiro and Butcher to get their asses back in the goddamn ring right now, but says they won't because the odds are now even. Pierce shakes Claudio's hand and leads the crowd in a Ring of Honor chant. As they raise each other's hands, they walk to the back together celebrating. Matt, before I ask your opinion on this segment, I, what I did love is this is something the commentary would talk about in the next segment. During the next match, and Wade Keller, I thought, had a great little thing here where he goes, The announcers reflected on Claudio confirming that despite his work for other organizations and working with CZW wrestlers before, he is, quote, Ring of Honor through and through, unquote. Anytime a wrestler is described as being anything through and through is a guarantee of a turn coming up, which I thought was like, yes, that's a good point. The question is, did Wade already know that turn had happened when he made that review? But this is this was classic Ring of Honor laying it on very thick, the opposite of what's going to happen. Of oh, we're, like Prazak and Lenny, they were clearly instructed them the next match to be like, we got Claudio on our side, you know, <laughs> right on the nothing could go wrong here. Like almost saying going as far as to say that. Yes, I agree. Although I'm fine with it. Yes. So um, as far as the CZW thing itself, Matt, I'm wondering what you think, because my thought was basically this whole segment was not bad, but I thought it was the first CZW segment we've seen that was not better than the one before. I thought each one was kind of getting bigger and more, you know, there was an escalation, there was getting more wrestlers involved, it was getting more over the top. We went from, like, Hero and Danielson at Hell Freezes Over to those couple of Hero or Necro Butcher like jumping the guard, the hero and Necro jumping the thing and the cra- and the backstage brawl and the Necro, you know, getting into it with Cornet and Cornet throwing a punch at Necro to the arena warfare giant CZW invasion. And this was more the first time it was like, this is kind of a half step back. It, it you know, it's not bad, but it, you know, it's just, I guess you can't go bigger every single time, but. Yeah, they was just sort of to keep things going. Um, it was fine. I mean, in some ways it was absolutely historic and I'll tell you why. It's the first time I could ever remember there being an ROH crowd brawl that wasn't even slightly obscured by darkness. Like you could you could see all of it. It wasn't like there was there was nothing about it that was like difficult to see. It, that that made it unpleasant because it was difficult to see. It was just like, "Oh, I guess I I can just see this like like normal." So in that sense, it was a pretty major segment. But besides that, yeah, um, I think you know what it did was it, it introduced Claudio into the mix, which is good um, because it was sort of he was sort of like the elephant in the room. Like I remember that even at the time, I was like, "Are they going to acknowledge that Chris Hero's tag team partner is you know in CZW is just a babyface in ROH? Is that going to happen?" And then they do here. So in that sense, it moved the story forward, and I guess that's all it needed to do. And the crowd really was into it, so. Good enough, but nothing special at all. And Matt, I think you will find out later that the reason why you could see the brawl, the crowd brawl for once, is that Ring of Honor used up their entire uh, show 
long quota for seconds obscured in darkness on something later in the night. So, yes, uh, yep, yep. Yes, yes, yes. Very so, much yes. <laughs> next, we will go to Christopher Daniels, a score to the ring by Allison Danger, who it, it's funny because, you know, Allison Danger usually has very, you know, like, she she really prides herself in having, like, crazy-themed get-up, whether she's wearing, like, a latex nun's outfit or a, uh, you know, a, a fluffy halo above her head. Like, this is the rare time where, because she's actually gotten to have a match tonight, she's just, like, in, you know, the clothes you'd wear after you just cooled off of working a wrestling match. But anyway, Christopher Daniels defeats Alex Shelley, escorted to the ring by Daisy Hayes and Prince Nana via pinfall, in 14 minutes, 33 seconds after he hits the Angels' wings. Um, Matt, before I go to you, we'll see. We I'll give you something to contrast with, which is Dave Meltzer's review or live report of this match. He wrote, Christopher Daniels beat Alex Shelley in 1917. So first off, I think on the DVD and according to Cajunch, I think this match was 1433. So either they edited off. Five yeah, I think that, I think that was just wrong. I, I was, cause I was at this show. I don't remember this match being like significantly longer than yeah, what it was. I didn't notice any cuts. So, and it would be weird if they did. Yeah, this doesn't feel like something that would cut five minutes off. But a- anyway, Dave wrote, the first 13 minutes were a lot of stalling. It was really good at the finish with great heat. Shelly was doing a lot of Chris Jericho spots. Daniels wanted the Angels wings. Again, I'm told the early part comes across better on tape. Matt, you were there live. You now have watched it again on tape. What did you think about the match? I thought it was a good match. I thought it was good live. I thought it was good on uh, on DVD. Um, I don't think that there was a huge difference in how it came across. There is a match later that I thought there was a pretty noticeable difference, but it's not this one. Um, the one thing that stood out to me in this match is Daniels really seemed like he was all healed up because you know he hurt himself in that Matt Seidel match, and he had kind of taken it easy the past few ROH shows. And he's really, like, just looking really good, athletically speaking, here in this match. And Shelley, I just have a lot of fun watching just during this era. He just he just really relishes his character and being a heel. And he definitely did, um, like, you know, do some Jericho stuff at different points. I think just in response to the crowd chanting, Jericho stuff at him, right? Like, but yeah, yeah he he does the lion salt, which is something that um you know he Shelley would break out occasionally throughout his career, but then for some reason on this side the crowd chants Y two J, and so he does Jericho's like stretched arm Jericho pose just to like play into it at that point. Yeah. Now there was stalling in this match, but I didn't think it was like so over the top stalling. Maybe they did cut some of it out that I just don't remember. But like watching this on tape, did you notice like an absurd amount of stalling? No, I I felt like this match isn't like a high tempo match until maybe the final minutes. But like the, the, there's a couple spots early where Shelley bails out of the ring, but Shelley did that in a lot of matches. I don't think you would typify those call those matches like. Oh, those are high-stalling matches. Yeah, I mean, the Danielson match from the last show, that was a high-stalling match, but not this one. Um, There was a couple of really cool spots. Like, um, there was one spot that I really, really liked, which was uh, Daniels tries to cartwheel over Shelly during, like, a drop-down, but Shelly grabs his arm while he's cartwheeling and turns it into a wrist lock, which is a counter I can't remember ever seeing before, and I thought it was really awesome, so... That's the sort of stuff that Shelley's really good at, and I like that. Um, but yeah, by by the end, they do have some fun, fast sequences, a bunch of standing switches that uh, Shelley wins by stomping on Daniel's foot and drop kicking him. 
And, you know, like you said, he does hit the quebrada. Um, they do some neat roll-ups down the stretch. Shelly hits a nice drop kick. Um, Daniels hits the blue thunder bomb. You know, and then, then they just go, they go to their big moves. And eventually, Shelly goes for a backslide, but Daniels rolls through and hits the Angels' wings out of nowhere. Um, so Daniels in danger, both win tonight. Um, I also liked that, um, uh, they didn't go over the top with interference because there were three people at ringside. Danger yeah. was in Daniel's corner and Nana and Daisy Hayes were in uh, Shelly's corner and they didn't really, you know, like Nana already had his interference spot earlier. He didn't have to do it again here. So they just had a match, a babyface heel match. And I thought it was a good match. Just, just good, but, but good. I liked it. Yeah. Um, I, I would agree that this is just good. But I, I, I like I think that's a perfect way to sum it up. Um, so we we agree on the match tonight, Matt. At least this one is <laughs> sympathetic. I thought, although I will say, I like this match almost all due to Alex Shelley. I thought Daniels actually gave Alex a lot of the body of this match, and it was really like a one man showcase for Shelley's personality because we've talked about before. Shelley's just. It seems like he's having so much fun in this role, and I think this was a great match to show off Shelley doing something that I think is a really great skill for wrestlers to have and a lot don't have, which is you're re- you're you're so present in matches and you've got such a good handle on the wrestling that you're reacting to like things on the fly, like very organically. And I think this whole match, like Shelley is really great that in this whole match, Shelley's just doing lots of little personality things to react to stuff organically. Like there's um. So there's the Chris Jericho stuff where, you know, on the fly, you know, he doesn't, doesn't freeze when the crowd starts mocking him for the Y2J stuff. He just like leans into it, plays it up and gets a pop. Um, there's a great spot. Like there, there's this fun spot early when Daniel slaps him in the face and Shelly bails to the floor and you could hear Shelly go, this isn't a slapping contest. And I, you know, again, I, I just love that he, you know, he's acting, you know, he's talking about the things that happened to him. There, there's a point where, um, Daniels has Shelly in a submission and uh Nana you can hear at ringside is going think Shelly think as in like think you know about a way to get out of this and you can just hear Alex Shelly as he is selling in the ring in a submission hold scream to Nana think of what Nana <laughs> like I just love like I love their chemistry and I thought the th- fun of this match is Shelly playing the heel who tickets out to the floor whenever he loses an exchange it's it's seeing how how good Shelly is at finding quick ways to regain control of the match with those little counters you talked about the stuff like the the stomping the foot or the grabbing the wrist lock out of a out of a goddamn you know cartwheel and then you know there is decent action in the final few minutes or even Shelly spitting water in Daniel's face to start the match like all that stuff I, I just thought this was this match was like a one man show for how good Alex Shelley's character work and kind of just his ability to kind of vibe with a match and just like react to things and be funny and, and entertaining. One last thing now in this match, there's a line on commentary that isn't that special, but for some reason it just tickled me where Lenny Litter on, on Alex Shelley says, and I quote, how could someone with hair like that be so obnoxious? And I guess what he meant was like, if you have like crazy, Yellow streak dyed ridiculous hair. Like you shouldn't have the balls to be this obnoxious. But almost the way he said it, like how could someone with hair that like that be so obnoxious? It almost made me feel like he. It almost sounded like him saying like, when you have a haircut like that, you have to not be obnoxious. You have to be charming, you know, because that's a great haircut. Like it was a funny little thing he said. I thought. Yeah, I would almost think the opposite is true. Like yeah. if you have an obnoxious haircut, it probably makes it likely that you're an obnoxious person. Exactly. Yeah. 
And that brings us to the Ring of Honor pure title match. Nigel McGuinness successfully defended the title when he defeats Claudio Casagnoli via pinball in 12 minutes, 58 seconds after he hit the rebound lariat. So this would be the blow-off match to their feud. Um, before the match, Nigel does his usual bit where he snatches the mic away from ref Todd Sinclair as he is doing the pure title match rules explanation. McGinnis sucks up to Todd Sinclair, telling him he thinks he's the best referee in Ring of Honor and also the world. Claudio then interrupts Nigel with a European uppercut. The match starts. Um, I, Matt, uh, we might disagree on this one. I have no idea what you feel about this match, but I this was one of my least favorite matches of their series. I thought it was still enjoyable, but Nigel was fully, you know, he had come back from a tour of Noah. He was fully Noah Nigel McGinnis at this point. And I know for a fact there are matches from more Noah-style Nigel McGinnis that I loved. But on this night, while he's still kind of transitioning, all I noticed were the things that were kind of, that we were losing from Nigel kind of being in transition. Because Nigel does not heal at all during this match. There's no comedy. There's no devious rule-breaking or any kind of cheating at all. There's almost none, no wacky British spots. There's not even a lot of emotion in this match, which is kind of weird because it's supposed to be the blow-off to a feud. It's just a lot of big strike exchanges, some professional work done by two professional wrestlers. I would say it's all well executed. It's entertaining enough but does feel kind of soulless to me, not like a dramatic conclusion to a series of matches. It does do one thing, I would say, to um, raise the stakes and make it feel like a a, a, uh, a, a blow-off match to a few, but it's the kind of the easiest, most standard way thing to do, which is each guy kicks out the other guy's finisher twice. So Nigel kicks out the, survives the Apomari water slide twice. Claudio survives two Towers of London but, you know, again, this isn't one of those matches we talked about, I think, recently. Another match that was kind of like a signpost of this, but Nigel kind of transitioning to more of a serious style. I think this is another kind of signpost match for that in the sense of this, you know, before we were seeing Nigel would use the uh, Tower of London as a finisher or other moves as a finisher, and the rebound lariat was kind of like a mid-match move. And now this is a we're seeing the change of the Tower of London's are the near falls, and the rebound lariat is actually the finish now. So a good decent match but i think these guys could have significantly better and i think i've seen these guys have matches that maybe aren't super super duper better than this but that i've liked more than this one yeah i mean i think this is just a difference of like i like the noah version of nigel because like, to me this is easily the best match we've seen so far between these two wow. like it's not it's honestly not even close like i didn't think that their other matches were particularly good um you know, or better, or at least not better than good. And I thought this match was... Yeah, see, I like those more than you did, so that makes yeah. this make sense then. Yeah, I thought this was, you know, not quite a four-star match, but three and a half, three and three quarters. Like, I really like this a lot. First of all, it, this was another match on this show that started out hot and heavy, which, you know, because Nigel, because Claudio, you know, like, attacks him before the bell and stuff. And I really liked that on this show, because ROH matches, for a while, they felt like they all started the same way with sort of like the slow feeling out process. And now almost every match on this show started out not like that. You know, whether it's Shelly spitting the water at Daniels, or, you know, we'll talk about the uh, some of the tag matches later, and this match with, with Claudio attacking before the bell. So I like that. I like that it's, you know, they're just, they feel like they were going for it a little bit more on this show. And yeah, and like, you know, they do some wacky submissions, but yeah, it is a lot more like impact stuff. And they bust out big moves, which you don't often see on these mid-card matches in ROH, including Claudio doing a big twisting dive over the top rope onto Nigel. How many times can you think of Claudio doing that move, period? Yeah, so, not many. 
yeah, so that's that's pretty cool. Um, the only real criticism I have of this match is that maybe it peaks like a couple minutes too early. Like do, when they were doing their like mid um, mid ring uppercut battle that ended with the Apamari water slide that Nigel kicked out of for the second time. I feel like that was the peak of crowd interest in the match. And then it sort of just felt like it lost a little bit of momentum in the last minute or two. But that's really my only criticism. I feel like if it ended like at the peak, it might have been a four-star match for me. Like that's how much I liked wow. it. Like I thought this was damn good. And like you said, with Nigel, you know, this was like a, a mark of Nigel's character changing. I think the promo that we're about to see like really is like, okay, this is the moment that Nigel introduces his new character. Yeah. And maybe it's one of those things too where even though, again, some of my, I, I, there's some Nigel matches come up that I absolutely love, but I also love kind of more goofy heel Nigel. And I were, I like it too, but the matches weren't as good. <laughs> our little boy is growing up and I, maybe I just don't want to let go of him, Matt. But, uh, I also, did you notice that the crowd chant at one point, God save the queen? Yes. So they, so they were almost like we're getting behind Nigel at that point. And I guess the other thing, in terms of bluff, we should point out that, um, Prezak on commentary actually goes as far as to say that not only is this, this is the last time Claudia will have an opportunity to wrestle for the pure title as long as Nigel is champ. So. Yeah. And, and like, I shouldn't make mention of that. Like, at the time, because of that stip, a lot of people both expected and wanted Claudio to win the title. And so it was a big moment when Nigel won. And it was a signal because they were, they decided they were going to go in this big direction that Nigel introduced during his um, promo, which is Nigel's going to start challenging Danielson because he wants to prove that he's the better of the two technical wrestlers. And, you know, I think this is the match where they, they kind of transition into that because Nigel's not going to be on the next few ROH shows. He's going back to Noah. And then when he gets back, it's pretty, much right into the first big Nigel versus Danielson match yeah. at uh, Weekend of Champions. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. Um, it's intermission at this point. This is this is interesting for a different reason. Gary Michael Capetta is backstage in near total darkness, waiting for Clyde to show up after his match. I thought this was frankly embarrassing, Matt. Like we've seen dark segments before. There are moments of this where it is almost pitch black like they like like it is embarrassing they couldn't have found a better place to shoot this or that they even used this i mean it, 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 it just embarrassing at the, we're, we're in 2006 at this point um, yeah i mean it's been embarrassing but i think what makes it more embarrassing is they kind of had to use it because it was a really good promo and that makes it worse so uh, Claudio doesn't show up, isn't showing up immediately because obviously he just wrestled a match. So Gary says they have a strange video from Jimmy Jacobs to show us. And what we get next, we finally have another one of those crazy things we've thought about for – I've thought about for a long time. We finally get to talk about it. We get the Ballad of Lacey, one of the legendary bits of Ring of Honor and a thing we'll talk about after we describe the – thing i can we can go into how it kind of saved jimmy jacobs career um so it is basically a jimmy jacobs produced home music video of a song he co-wrote with some people it is a love ballad for lacy it is cheesy it is low production and it is goofy in all the right ways i would say the song while not great legit kind of gets stuck in your head 
It also has the now very outdated line, Lacey, put me in your top eight when you might, when you might space me. Which well, that, that I, makes it great because it, it makes it a product of its time, which I think makes it all the more charming. A much more problematic reason that a line doesn't hold up when he says, you're the American beauty and I'm Kevin Spacey. <laughs> that holds up. That doesn't hold up for a whole different reason. Yeah, I, I said that. I wrote my notes. That line wasn't great at the time and aged very poorly because obviously people go might go, okay, like, guys, hey, yeah, we know now that Kevin Spacey is not a good person. But but think about, but the thing about it is even at the time, for those spoilers for people who have not seen a decades-old movie known as American Beauty, but like that movie – Kevin Spacey in that movie is a guy who like – begins like a romantic like sexual dalliance with his do- teenage daughter's friend and then the movie ends with him getting murdered like uh, to say like in a love song i'm I, you're my, the american beauty and i'm kevin spacey is like do you really know what happens there like it, it, it's not a loving thing but uh, so I'm now like, you now you have to put in the description for the show spoilers of the ending of american beauty <laughs> <laughs> I will, but uh, but I get it. Lacey rhymes with Spacey. But um, anyway, obviously the, the the best line of this, the one that people I think really remember, the, the home run line here is um, Jimmy singing, "There are no other candidates." Together were the match of the year. Yeah, that's basically like the the big the big end point of the chorus. This is a classic song for a reason, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and um. We get a touch of creepiness that was present in the early stages of the story where we see Jacobs at one point in the music video is in bed in his underwear. I think it's like a leopard spot or striped underwear, cradling a picture of Lacey as he pours hot candle wax on himself and then grinds his, his <laughs> grinds his groin in the direction of the photo. Like, I love how in a lot of ways this is kind of a sweet song and then it still has like that real – creepy one vibe right i'm not sure that jimmy jacobs when he made this was like oh this is going to make me a big baby face you know like because i it's clearly like self-aware and how creepy it is and like that makes it work it's it's to the fans um uh, detriment that they chose to make this this character their hero (laughs) i i I wonder like my memory is terrible but i'm wondering like my memory is that as this progresses and the fans get into it they tone down the creepy element because I think with that one segment that they shot at home with Jimmy Jacobs before this, which was kind of like this, but without a song and a music video, but where he was still like talking about how much he loves Lacey and like holding her picture. Like they were really playing up the Jimmy is creepy, kind of creepy and obsessed with her. But I feel like as the angle went on, they kind of toned that down element down and focused more on the, Oh, Jimmy's this likable guy who has this huge crush on this mean girl where I don't know. Uh, there are things that I remember about this angle that don't quite quite line up with what you're saying. Yeah, like, uh, again, may- maybe maybe there's a little bit of that, but they, I think it maybe kind of goes. It ebbs and flows in terms of how creepy the character is. There, mean, like, there's going to be a storyline later where Lacey like does a promo where she's like, "Jimmy, if you win this match, I'll get naked for you." You know, like stuff like that. Yeah, <laughs> which is also weird because we just had a match recently on through the years where like. Jimmy doesn't even want people like looking or touching at Lacey at ringside. So like it's just anyway. Yeah. Um, this was a great segment. So going into a bit of the backstory, uh, give credit to our friends at the an honorable mention podcast. They did a whole interview with Jimmy Jacobs and he goes into this and obviously you guys should hunt that episode down, listen to it. But the, um, 
the way Jimmy tells this story is that he says February of 2006, so that would have been the month before this show, he had a conversation with Gabe about, like, what's my future with this company? Like, he wasn't really feeling like the B.J. Whitmer stuff was having – tag team was having a lot of momentum, which it wasn't. And the way he describes it is Gabe tell, tells Jimmy, you're not really – you don't really have DVD selling matches, which is – seems to be a criticism, you know. Gabe would offer a lot of mid-carters that were not happy with their station because Jimmy uh, Ray in an interview said the exact same line that Gabe told him, you don't sell, have DVD selling matches. Um and it basically said, like, you know, we're going to, um, you know, you're going to have the blow-off match with BJ Whitmer in the WrestleMania triple shot weekend, and then we'll see what happens. And the way Jimmy doesn't outright say this, but the way he says that, it basically sounds like Gay was basically saying, like, you know, I'm going to book you against BJ, and then you're probably done. Which, you know, the way at this point, you know, considering that he wasn't even being booked to every show anymore, you know, that's not hard to believe so jimmy's thing was he he felt like this was like his hail mary he shoots this video you know develops the song with his friends does it all himself and he says this was back in the day before like you know a lot of video since youtube was just in the early days and he says he recorded this on a vhs tape and mailed the tape to gabe he says it took weeks for gabe to like see it or comment on he was like wondering like did gabe even get the tape and then one day he says, Gabe just called him and says, I did think like, I just saw the tape. This is like the greatest thing I've ever seen. Like, I, th- this is so amazing. And he immediately just said to, to Jimmy, like, you know, can you do this date in Philly? And, and Jimmy was saying like, you know, like I was shocked because I had, he had stopped booking me in the East. He was booking me mostly in the Midwest. So I think that speaks to something we've talked about before on the show, which is one thing I think that's really good element Gabe has that like a lot of bookers don't have, which is, he can go from zero to 60 on a guy. Like I feel like there's a lot of bookers in wrestling history where they form an opinion of a wrestler and that opinion then never changes. So if they think a wrestler, if they see nothing in a wrestler, doesn't matter if that wrestler gets over, they will never, they will always say, eh, he still doesn't have it. And there are people that like, if a guy gets over once, even if they stop being over, they just think, Oh, this guy was over two years ago. He's still got to be good. I think Gabe had a really good ability of things like this, or we'll talk years later about the Kevin Owens thing or Kevin Steen thing of, of like, he can be completely done with a guy and kind of check down being like, yeah, we're just going to face this guy out. And if he sees one thing from that guy that like sells him on him, he will completely like reverse course instantaneously. And I mean, true to form, he puts this promo on the DVD, you know, something that he did not commission that, you know, was filmed in Jacob's house. And yeah, this is the, this promo literally saved Jimmy Jacobs' career. I think it's pretty fair to say, for everything I've heard, that Jimmy Jacobs in Ring of Honor run would probably have ended over the next few shows after that BJ Whitmer match, if not for him going taking the initiative and making this promo. Yeah, I would say that's true. Although, you know, I mean, I mean, and I definitely don't want to downplay how big of a deal this promo was. It was huge, like just as a fan, but also for Jimmy Jacobs, as we know. And I agree with you totally about how Gabe can be flexible on guys and like how what a really important and good quality that is in a booker. But as we're going to see next week, his performance in that match with BJ is also extremely memorable and star making in its own way, possibly for unpleasant ways, <laughs> unpleasant yeah. reasons. But um, so who knows what even just that alone would have done. But uh, besides that, yeah, no, I think you can't really argue with what a big deal this this uh, music video was for Jimmy Jacobs. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah, I agree. It would be interesting. Yeah. To see what, what happens to Jacobs in a world where 
this music video doesn't happen, but that crazy match still happens. Like, does yeah. that buy him more bookings? How does does he have momentum going forward? But either way, it's funny because again, he he did that promo that was kind of had some of the creepy elements that was shot at his home like this, but it was not. It did not give him any traction with Gabe or anybody. It's it's the fact that the music video, how clever and unique it was. Like I was reading the. Uh, the the uh roundtable review that the torch had of this show and everyone on that roundtable every single one of them is mentioning how great the um jim jacobs music video was even people that normally wouldn't like i think bruce mitchell even says the effect of was i wasn't into the jimmy jacobs stuff but i like this music video is great like it was something that yeah. basically won over everybody it was also just so like timely and with the zeitgeist because wasn't this like the mainstream peak of emo music basically like in the uh in the mid mid aughts so like it really fit the tone of the time too and i don't know when exactly this was uploaded to youtube but i remember like like jimmy talks about this in the interview um you know this was kind of the early days of social media where in some ways that's kind of bad because you know it, it wasn't maybe as prevalent as a thing as it is today. I mean, like YouTube or stuff like that even, but he said he did point out that like, he thought one of the successes was like, you did not have to compete with so much. Like if you had something on YouTube, he kind of thought it was easier for something to kind of go viral. And obviously what went viral by 2006 ring of honor standards in terms of views is not close to what we consider viral today. But I remember like at the time it was something that, you know, before the days of Twitter and stuff like that, it was something that was kind of like, have you seen this? Like, you here's the YouTube link. Like, that, that did kind of spread a little bit. Yep. No, definitely. Uh, so, yeah, we then go come back to um, behind the scenes. And Gary is joined by Nigel McGinnis in, again, an almost pure darkness. Uh, Nigel says, take it, look where the belt is. The camera pans down to a belt that we can barely see because it's near pitch black. Um, Nigel talks about carrying on his win streak and going back to Noah to make the pure title the real world's championship belt. Nigel says he's the best pure wrestler in the world today and asks Brian Danielson to slap him in the face if he thinks Nigel's lying. And this is what you were talking about before, Matt. This is like the more the start of a more serious Nigel McGinnis. And also, basically, this is the very start of a Nigel Danielson feud. Yeah. I mean, I really, really was a fan of this promo. Uh, Too bad I couldn't see it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great radio promo. But um And also again, this is a very calculated, deliberate change in the character, and spoiler alert, it is going to work. <laughs> Nigel really- will become more over and a bigger star because of this change. Yeah, and also it's doing something that Gabe wanted to do, I think, since day one with the pure title, which is he was he was teasing that right from the start with uh, AJ Styles and CM AJ Styles, I mean and uh Samoa Joe, which is he want always wanted to start wanted to do the idea of like the war, a war, like a feud between the pure champ and the world champ. And obviously AJ leaving kind of sidetracked that. And then the pure title kind of became more of a mid card title that seemed like Gabe's original intent was. But now when we're months away from the pure title going away, we're kind of ending kind of fittingly where I feel like Gabe, more close to what Gabe's kind of original vision for this was, which was the pure champion being like, yeah, this is as good as the world title. Like, if you think you have a problem with that, like, prove it against me. You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and, and like, you know, you couldn't have asked for to do it with two guys with better chemistry than Danielson and McGinnis to the point where once they're done with the pure title, their feud continues into 
what I would argue is in terms of running over the course of years and staying consistently good, the greatest feud of the decade, of that decade in ROH, um, the greatest rivalry, I'll say, not feud, uh, between McGinnis and Danielson. They just ended up having so, so many great matches against each other over the course of years, and we're getting fairly close to the first one, so I'm pretty excited yeah. about that. Yeah, I, I, that's what, honestly, that, that first one that's coming, well, not the first one, actually, the second one that would be, that would be a unified. Third one, that's would be the third one. Okay, third one, oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, I, I can't wait to talk about that match, that, that's just a very special match to me in a lot of ways, but, um, that brings us to the first match back to inter- from intermission, which is not a special match to me in a variety of ways. Um, Austin Aries defeated Ricky Reyes, scored to the ring by Julius Smokes, by disqualification in 11-26 when um, Reyes would not release a dragon sleeper despite Aries getting to the ropes. Um, the Observer, Dave wrote in The Observer, of course the crowd hated disqualification, but at least this wasn't just a DQ to avoid someone doing a job, but a way to tell the story that Aries can't break Ray, break Reyes' choke finisher for when he's involved in the tag title scene. Well, thank and God then, we tell that story. <laughs> on the edge of my seat, Matt. And then Wayne Keller in his review, I thought did a good way. I, in my review, I was when I was writing my notes, I was trying to figure out another, what's another way to keep talking about Ricky Reyes. I think uh, Wade Keller had a good kind of way of talking about it. Um, he wrote this review of Ricky Reyes. I mean, of this match. He wrote, the disappointment of the show was Aries versus Reyes. There's just something missing with Reyes at this point, but I can't put my finger on it. Aries' look has really advanced over the past year, and even since his TNA dates. First off, Matt, has Aries' look really changed that much? Maybe he's mildly changed his facial hair? He, well, no. I mean, the difference in his look is he's beefier. Like he's, okay, he's, yeah, he's, yeah. He's put and, on some muscle. And he cut his hair much shorter. Like, you know, I mean, he started doing that the previous summer, but, you know, when Aries was first getting over in ROH, he had longer hair. So, uh, anyway, uh, Wade continues. He has a, Aries has a more serious fighter appearance, which really suits his style. Some really good exchanges, but something was missing to bring to the next level. Reyes has talent, but he hasn't put it all together yet. Two and a half stars. Um, Matt, what do you think about this match? Um, yeah, this was the... I mean, spoilers, the only match on the show that didn't work for me. Um, you know, it wasn't like bad, but it was boring. Um, you know, they tried to really, they tried to be intense with their mat work and, you know, Reyes certainly was kicking hard. They were hitting each other hard. Um, at one point, Smokes, and I always love when Smokes yells something a little bit different. He goes, um, he, uh, so Aries has Reyes on the ground and he's like over him. And uh, Smokes yells, hey, Ricky, punch him in his mouth right now, which is very hard to do when the guy that you want him to punch is standing up and the guy you want to do the punching is lying down. That's not easy to punch someone in the uh, in the face uh, at that moment. Um, also, this is – did you notice – maybe I'm wrong. Is this the first time that Aries does his – he does the knee drop and then he does like he goes he rolls backwards and does the slow motion version of it. Has have we seen that yet in ROH? One of my favorite things that happens on this podcast is when I have a thing in my notes I'm going to ask you and then you ask me and I basically say, Well, I must be right then if Matt's also asking me because I was gonna yeah. ask you, is that the first time we've seen that in Ring of I'm Ring? almost I'm almost positive. And he does he does make that a, a fairly regular spot going forward. I, I might forward. be wrong about this, but I vaguely recall he might have done that in that C Z W match, you know, that we just talked about on the last show where he goes and main events that CZW show. Gotcha. Maybe he got the idea there to kind of like 
you know, rib the crowd. And he was just, maybe he was just like, oh, this is like a, a cool spot, you know. So it's the debut in ROH, at least. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't remember this ever happening before, in Ring of Honor, at least, before this match. Yeah. Um, I'd say the work here is solid. You know, Aries does like a pretty nice heat-seeking missile. And I get the idea of the finish. Um, thank goodness, after the finish, they um, they transition immediately to the next match. Very smart, because the crowd hated the finish. Yeah. And they get over it within seconds. So that was very smart booking. But yeah, I agree with Wade, honestly. This match, just there's just something missing, and it just didn't really click. I maybe like this match very slightly more than you and Wade. Like maybe by instead of two and a half stars of Wade's giving, I would give it like two and three quarters. Um, wow, big, big I know one. that's very slight, but I would just say like all my enjoyment in this match comes from Austin Aries. Like Austin Aries is really over, and I thought like you know Austin Aries is a prickly kind of personality sometimes, and sometimes he can see pretty grumpy even in the ring. This was a match where. I rarely have seen Austin Aries like it seemed like he was really having a lot of fun and was in a good mood. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but he was kind of just really playing babyface here. Well, he, you know, having fun with stuff like the slow motion, you know, re instant replaying knee drop and all like, and he, you know, he was just hitting his usual stuff and hitting it. Well, they even did a little spot where, um, instead of jumping out of a head scissors, doing the usual Aries jumps out of a head scissors and does a drop kick to his opponent's face. Aries, Reyes just gets Aries and another head scissors. And then he goes for the drop kick and Reyes dodges that and then does a face lock. And then Aries kind of does a version of the drop kick counter out of that. I just thought, Hey, you're kind of changing things up. And Aries even takes a couple big bumps. I would say for a Saito suplex and a Japanese arm drag into the corner. But yeah, it's also Reyes and Reyes, I, you know, I've talked to him a lot. It's just, he just, he, he feels like a video game wrestler to me. He has a handful of moves, some kicks, a couple suplexes, a couple submissions, his running knee. He just spams them out. What he does in minute three of a match feels like the same things he might do at minute nine of a match, just a different order. You know, it's, he's the Taco Bell wrestler. He's the, he's always got the same handful of ingredients. He just puts them in slightly different configurations in a way that doesn't really feel big. I don't, I, I don't know. It's just, he's, you know, his basic mechanics are good, but yeah, he is missing a lot of things to me. But anyway, the match ends with that, you know, Reyes won't release the choke after the match. Reyes refuses to release it, and the crowd chants bullshit until Jack Evans and Roderick Strong come from backstage and run Ricky off. The Briscoes almost immediately jump them. We have an impro- our match. I mean, this was on the card, but it is starting without entrances, without any you know anything big. And that would be generation next of Jack Evans and Roderick Strong defeating the Briscoes of Jay and Mark in 19 minutes, 29 seconds, when Evans pins Mark Briscoe after hitting the Phoenix Splash variation of Ode to the Bulldogs. Uh, the Observer would write, Strong and Evans being Mark and Jay Briscoe may have been even better than the main event. With a fast-paced, big-move match with lots of near-falls, Strong was chopping the Briscoes raw. Evans splashed off Strong's shoulders onto both one of the brothers for the pin. On tape, I'm told both matches are equally as good, but entirely different style matches, with this match faster and more big moves. Um, To me, this is a, on paper, this is a dream match. This is the Briscoes, maybe the greatest indie tag team or maybe one of the greatest tag teams period of their generation against to me one of the most underrated tag teams of their generation in jack and roddy simply because they didn't get a long extended run anywhere really and um 
it's just two teams. They go balls to the wall. Apart from uh, two sequences during the match where Evans got isolated, has leg worked over a bit. This is nothing but crazy action. I, Matt, I, I would say the word I would use to describe this match is relentless. It just keeps going and going with big move after big move, double team after double team. It starts early. It never really stops. Um, I'm sure you'll just go into the law, the moves in the match. And like I always say, big spot fest tags, they're the type of match where the bar's been raised so much in the last 16 years, and so many tags now are faster than this is, and smoother, and maybe even put together, like pre-planned more intricately to have more big spots that, in a way that flows without pauses. But this match felt slightly ahead of its time. Like, it really is kind of balls to the wall in a way that a lot of matches aren't of this, at least with workers of this caliber, they didn't lead to the crowd, but they almost got to the point where in the last couple of minutes, I got this feeling of like things weren't quite getting, and we'll get that in the main event too. They were getting still big pops, but not quite the big pops. I felt that they deserved. It was almost that thing that would become a criticism of ring of honor in the future. That feeling of you can kind of feel the crowd going, wow, they've done a lot. Maybe you can, maybe we're good now. You're doing a lot here, but that doesn't matter. Cause I thought this match was great. I would give this like, Four and a quarter stars. One of the best matches we've seen in Ring of Honor so far in 2006. There are so many spots here, primarily from Jack and Roddy, that you just hadn't seen in Ring of Honor for, before. Stuff that would be match highlights, and they're just cranking one of them out after another. The Briscoes are machines. I like them breaking out the spinning toehold in figure four. Even I thought that was cool stuff to see in the context of like a crazy spot match. Uh, Jack Evans was in a stage of his career where he's starting to add a lot more kicks, which was a big improvement over him trying to throw really bad looking elbows and forearms. Uh, Jack had a couple spots where it looked like he almost killed himself. And if there is a big flaw in this match, I would say it's the end because Jack gets almost none of Mark on the O to the Bulldogs. Like he, he lands on his head, which I, I mean, was a flaw for Mark, but in terms of making the move look effective, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, he basically gets his hand and arm out and catches Mark in the head face with it. But overall, he, I thought he looked great. In some ways, I thought he was the MVP of, of a match like this. Uh, yeah, I just, uh, we can talk more about the moves and stuff, but I should just hand it over to you. I, I, as just a big, crazy move spot fest, I really, really like this. Yeah. So, yeah, so if you want me to list the moves, I got you on that. But before I do that, um, uh, so live, this match completely blew me away because it was like you said, just move, move, move. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! Um, on video, I noticed flaws with it a little bit more. Like, you know, there's some sloppiness, some pacing issues. There's really, it takes a really long time for it to settle into any sort of like momentum. It really just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Like tags you think are supposed to be hot tags, but then they're not. And then finally, in like the past, in the last like, like six minutes, they get the heat on Jack Evans and, um, and they kind of take over on him until they get built to a really good hot tag by Roderick. So I maybe didn't totally like it quite as much as you, but I still thought it was really, really good. Um, but like you said, it absolutely is just like moves, moves, moves right at the beginning. Cause like I said, at the very beginning, the crowd is just pissed because of the finish of the previous match. So very, very smartly booked. They, the, the strong and Evans make the save and then the, Briscoes come out. Mark immediately does this crazy dive onto Strong. While like almost like a split second after Mark lands, you see like on the corner of the camera, Jack Evans springboarding it over onto the top rope and doing uh, Rana onto Jay, which is just like the crowd has already forgotten about the finish. They're just into this match now, and you know the the Briscoes target Jack's leg to ground him pretty early. 
Jay does a big spine buster and then slingshots Jack into Mark's boot in the corner. So they dominated him. Jack comes back with this wacky reversal evasion thing that leads to Jay clotheslining Mark. And then Roderick presses Jack into Mark, who's sitting in the corner. This all happens within like a minute or two. So there's more double teaming. Jack does... Um, he almost does a springboard, but then flips backwards and then does another springboard, flipping forwards and doing a flip onto the Briscoes and onto Strong, honestly, on the floor. Then he does this really cool handstand kick and a jumping double knee drop onto Mark, like almost like a double stomp, but it's his knees. Um, so now already the Generation Next are in control. Um, for a few minutes, not for long, because then the Briscoes do this combo where Mark gets a two count after a twisting senton off the top, off the middle rope onto Strong. And then Strong immediately comes back with a belly to back springboard neck breaker combo with Jack's help. Um, so again, just tons of momentum shifts. shifts. <laughs> At one point, Strong backdrops Evans onto Jay Briscoe and then does a standing moonsault himself followed by a standing twisting press by Jack. You know, I don't think that Strong ever really made the standing moonsault part of his repertoire, but he could definitely do one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Jay and Mark do some double teams of their own. Um, big kick to the back and then a big boot to the front um, by Mark and Jay on Strong. Uh, at one point, Mark slaps Strong in the face and they end up just pounding on each other until Mark powers him up with a gut wrench and a big jumping knee. And cleverly, Mark pulls Strong to the Briscoe's corner before covering. I always like the little touches that the Briscoes do like that. Yeah. Because not every team does that. Um, and I also noticed that Evans is adding definitely a lot more kicks to his arsenal. And then he gets a standing 450 for two. Um, and then Mark catches Jack and just drops down into a leg lace. But Strong grabs Evans' arm and pulls him into the corner. Um, at one point, they they do some. They pull out some old school with Mark doing a classic uh, Indian deathlock onto Evans, and at that point, they 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 finally start getting some heat on Evans for a while. Uh, they set uh, they set Jack up in the shattered dreams position, and Jay does a running kick to Jack's leg. Jay does a spinning toe hold um, at one point, uh, and a figure four which we don't see too often from the Briscoes. They even do the spot where Mark like kind of grabs at Jay's arm while in the figure four, which is fun until Keener catches it and kicks Mark's arm away. Um, eventually, Evans comes back with a sudden moonsault off the middle rope. This is where some of the sloppiness comes in because when Jack does that moonsault, Jay sort of has to like run forward to make sure that Evans catches him with the moonsault. Mm-hmm. But but then Jack makes the hot tag, and Strong at this point to me is like the best hot tag guy they have at this point. He just he comes in, hits good chops, backdrops, kicks, including this really awesome drop kick to Jay Tiger Driver on Mark. He does the spot where he's going to drop Jack onto Mark's back, where Mark is lying over like the the middle rope, but Jay cuts it off. Um, Strong gets the inverted atomic drop and sick kick on Jay before lifting. Evans into this twisting press on Jay for a two count. Um, eventually, um, you know, Mark hits a fisherman's buster on Jack, puts Jay on top of him, but Jack kicks out. And the Briscoes hit the springboard doomsday device. Strong breaks that up. Then Strong hits the double knees on Jay, half Nelson backbreaker on Mark, and they go right to the O to the Bulldogs Phoenix splash, like you mentioned, with Evans 
basically landing on Mark's face for the pin. Um, so, yeah, super fun match live. Very fun match on video, too. I don't know that I'd go quite as high as you, but it was really, really good. Like, I mean, definitely a match that anybody watching now today would still get a kick out of. Yeah, and I do agree with you that, like, there are flaws in this match, and, and I do feel like maybe people that haven't watched this era might not like it as much as me, or, I mean, even you didn't like it quite as much as me. I, I think it's still enjoyable, even if you didn't come in this era, but I feel like, yeah, it isn't quite as fast or as smooth as a lot of the spot fest tags we see today, but, like, I think it's still fun even by today's standards. And also at the standards of the day, just watching every Ring of Honor show in order, in order, this really did feel like state of the art for Ring of Honor at this time. Like we've seen big, crazy, like scramble undercard matches, but in terms of like really talented guys on the top of the card, you know, in, in a big position, just going this nuts. I felt like this was kind of, Oh, this is like a new level for Ring here's of the Honor. one negative about that. Yes. This is state-of-the-art for ROH at this time. It does take it to a new level. And in less than one week, it will be basically made completely antiquated by what we see on the um, on the uh, Dragon Gate matches. Yeah, which is kind of – it's sad because, yeah, it, it's uh, – yeah, you are absolutely right about that, which we will, we will get to soon. But um, immediately after the match, the crowd gives all four men an extended standing ovation, which, you know, you did not always see the standing ovation in Ring of Honor, followed by a big ring of RO, by a big ROH chant. Roddy carries Evans over his shoulder to the back. Roddy's just done. And Prezak says, Kamana and Homicide are out of action tonight due to the brawl they had on the streets after the last show that had no cameras around, but they do have a video from Kamana and they're about to show it. So, First of all, in the last show that we talked about Arena Warfare, like, oh, they teased a brawl between Cabana and, and Homicide, and oh, it never happened, I guess, because of the CZW angle. So instead, they're actually they're saying in storyline, no, it did happen. We just didn't have cameras that caught it. So, um, Yeah, I like that little touch. Yeah. So next, we, uh, we see Colt Cabana backstage somewhere. I mean, I guess not here because he wasn't at the show where he talks about the Drano incident and we get a little cir- we get a little circle in the top right corner of the screen showing the Drano incident happening, which is almost like a cartoon thought bubble for Colt Cabana, which made me laugh even though that wasn't their intention. Um Colt says he can't stop thinking about it and how he now knows he could die at any time. He said homicide gave him the idea that he can be scared of death. Colt says since then he's had a constant fear. He can either run away from that fear and the profession that he loves, or he can get in that ring and fight. Colt says he can do the most important thing he can do, and that's conquer that fear. He compares it to driving after getting in a car accident, or playing baseball again after getting beamed by a fastball, or getting bitten or or getting bitten by a dog and losing an index finger and then seeing another dog one day. Colt says that's the kind of constant fear that consumes your life. It never lets you rest. Colt won't stop thinking about what kind of fear this is. He, Colt says he now feels that that fear every time he goes into a venue. Colt says you can quit baseball and you can stay away from all dogs or you can face that fear. Colt says he's decided to pet the dog walking down the street and confront his fear. Colt starts giving a screaming cell job to his and Homicide's upcoming feud-ending matches. Matt, this promo, I mean, some of the Colt Cabana promos during this feud have been very good. This might have been the worst. It was overlong. It was very overwrought. And the constant alluding, comparing this to, like, 
comparing fighting homicide to petting a dog again. It was just, it made me laugh when it, I don't think that was its intention. Yeah, I, so, first thing, the first reaction I had was, it must be nice, Cole, to have not had a fear of death until yeah. this homicide thing, because you know you and I, that's just all we ever think about. Yeah, so, like, I don't need someone to pour a caustic chemical down my throat to make me afraid. Like, I look in the mirror, and I'm afraid of death. Absolutely. Same here. Um, the other thing is, like, yeah, so Cole worked, like, Cole tried really, really hard here. Like, he, like, he put everything into this, you could tell. Yeah. But my takeaway from this is, it's not surprising to me that Cole Cabana didn't try to do more of this in his career. You know what I mean? Like, it's just not his thing. Um, bless him. Bless his heart. He tried. Um, but this is not Cole's forte. Um, but he does recap the angle and explain his motivation. So I guess it was effective in that way. I mean, I, I agree that this is not his forte, forte. I will say he has had better serious promos that we have liked. Yeah. Than this. But yeah. This but, is- but not, but nothing that was like, Oh my God, he needs to no. do more of this. But, but on, on the other hand, we've also never, I don't think I've can seen in ring of honor, a wacky Colt Cabana promo that is close to this kind of like, not good. So yeah, like, Definitely not his strong suit, but that brings us to the main event. Kenta and Naomichi Marafuji defeated Brian Danielson and Samoa Joe in 33 minutes, 34 seconds, when Kenta pinned Danielson after he hit go to sleep. Of uh, the Observer's live reports on this, Dave would write, the match went 33-36, and most accounts were that it was really good in the four-star range. Most reports range from three and three-quarters to four and a quarter, but not a match of the year, and actually disappointing to some. The knocks were that it probably would have been excellent at 25 minutes, but Kenta and Marafuji did long heat spots that kind of dragged. Those who have seen it on tape have said it was too slow-paced early for the live crowd, but it comes across as a better match on tape because the building of a match is usually better on tape than live for a high-spot-hungry crowd. And also because live, Kenta is so much over than Marafuji that when Marafuji was in, it felt like the crowd was just waiting for Kenta to tag in. Others felt it followed an incredible tag match, Roderick Shaw and Jack Evans versus the Briscoes, and that this match appears to have been booked more for a story of making Kenta a challenger for Danielson, he pinned the ROH chant with the go to sleep, than anything else, as well as Danielson and Joe not being good partners with Danielson not wanting to tag in. Kenta and Joe refused to shake hands, and they kind of played off the idea that uh, off the idea they did an angle at the AAA Ray De Reyes show the week before. They may do a singles match as well. Matt, what do you think about the match? I, I, I disagree with some of the things in that review, but we can get to that when it's my turn. But Matt, this was the main event. Obviously, for those who don't know the era, Kenta and Marafuji were like the big worldwide tag team in Noah from Noah, not just Noah, but you know, like from people that really watch tapes, the kind of the team and, you know, team up against the two greatest wrestlers, maybe in ring of honor history. This was a dream match. Again, another dream tag on top of the card. And this is why they called the show best in the world. Cause these were like, in a lot of people's minds, the four best in the world, like bar none at this point. Yeah. Um, so like that's a, that's a pretty special match. And you know, at the beginning, the, you could tell the crowd is ready for this to be like a really special match. The entrances, the reactions, it's a treated like a really big deal. Um, I will agree with one thing that Dave said in the recap, which is this match did come across better on tape than it did live in the sense of like live. I was like, Oh my God, that Evans and strong versus the Briscoes match was like the, the match to beat. And like the, the main event was slightly disappointing in comparison 
on video, I actually like this one a little bit more than the other one. Um, and I think it is for some of the reasons that Dave mentioned. Um, not to say there aren't flaws in this match, um, and which I'll get to, um, but the, um, the thing that I notice here first right off the bat is, um, Danielson, you know, and I mentioned this, I think, during the rave match, he sort of has two modes right now. He has the over-the-top, arrogant, heelish mode, and then he has the serious, more like Japanese wrestler mode, and he's more in the Japanese wrestler mode here. He's not doing as much of the crowd work. There's a little bit, you know, but he really dials it back a lot, um, especially in the pre-match, and like, you know, I think he's kind of goaded into being more of the character later, but like like when he's um, when he teases tacking in Joe and then he doesn't do it. But it really is a lot of just him just being a serious, intense wrestler, not really being so much of a heel. In fact, at certain points in the match, almost Kenta and Marafuji act a little bit heelish, like almost like a little bit like kind of punks. Um, by Marafuji with the, threatens to punch the ref at one point. Yeah, yeah, and there's just there's a taunting of Joe. The thing about this match that I thought was interesting, you know, everybody talks about this match is to build up Kenta versus Danielson because. The uh, you know that is what they built to right uh, the big match in September. Mm-hmm. But yeah. don't you think the match they were teasing more than anything was some, was Kenta versus Joe? Like wasn't that was what, the main focus of this match? And like yeah. that's the match you come away wanting to see, not Danielson Kent. I mean, I want to yeah. see that too. And, and going to again, Dave's note again. If I just look over that, he he writes here they may do a singles match as well between Kenta and Joe, and saying that they did an angle in AAA the week before. But I think we also read recently that they said a story, or maybe I got in my notes that's coming up, but I think I already read it on one of the shows that they weren't going to do Kenta versus Joe because Noah didn't want Kenta to lose to Joe and Ring of Honor didn't want Joe to lose to Kenta. But yet here, yeah, like if you watch this match, I would have come away from watching this match being convinced that like Kenta versus Joe is happening in the next few months. To the point where like, you know, you talk about how Joe versus Loki 2 was like the big lost ROH match. At this point to me, it's like, I almost think that Kenta versus Joe is the match. Like, if I had to choose between which two I wanted to happen more, it would have been this one. Because did they ever have a singles match anywhere? Joe I and- don't. I don't know. You would. I think you would know if they had it. So I'm thinking they didn't. Yeah, and I mean, I, they didn't have it in Ring of Honor. I mean, right. And- but I'm. But I'm saying like that. If that match happened, it would have gotten notoriety. Um, and I don't think they ever did. And it's like. So Joe and Loki, I think if they wrestled again, like there could have been some issues with it, like in the sense of like we saw the Danielson Loki two matches. Loki was a different wrestler yeah. than what he was in two thousand two. I think Joe and Loki, I mean Joe and Kenta, if they just laid it all hang out, they would have had just a bomb match. You know what I mean? Not like a bomb, like a match bombs, but like just like <laughs> this match is the bomb. You know? Because even their sequences here, like. There's a lot of teasing for Joe really wanting to tag in. When he finally does, they start kicking the crap out of each other and slapping each other. And every single thing they do together is awesome. And yeah, they maybe that's because they don't have to do much, you know, like they they just do a lot of teases basically and leave you wanting a lot more. But the crowd goes nuts for all of it. It's really awesome. Um, so so I don't know. I, I feel like that I really wish we had that match. Um but as far as the rest of the match, um, there is a lot. You know, Danielson really works like almost the whole match for his team. Um, and they do, you know, it is slow at times. In fact, there's this one point in the middle, and I it jogged my memory. I remember this from being there live. 
there's this like weird hum in the background. I don't know if you noticed it. Yeah, I did. You were watching. Yeah. So like it was really distracting in the building. And I think it was gone by the end of the match. I don't so remember. So that was for in sure. the building and not on like the DVD. That, that's like a sound you heard in the building. Yes. And I don't ah. remember what, if I knew what it was at the time, but I don't know if it had something to do with the, um, like the pressurized roof or something. <laughs> I, I'm just assuming, but I don't actually know, but it was very distracting. And I think that hurt the crowd heat a little bit. Um, just a little bit. But, um, but as far as the match, I thought the, the work was, was pretty good throughout, throughout. It was, you know, even though it was long, it wasn't super hot the whole way through, but I thought it was good. There were some cool spots. There was one point actually that, that I noticed. I don't know if you picked up on this. I don't know if when you watched, but there's this one point where Danielson does this really deep half crab on Marafuji where he cranks back and he sticks his tongue out while doing it. Yeah. And it reminded me of Daniel Garcia. Um, I don't know if, if, that if you picked up on that at all i didn't pick up the daniel garcia thing but i thought like it's so crazy because you never see daniel do that like he sticks his tongue out so well he's basically doing like the was up guy from the budweiser commercial like he's really hanging tongue here but doesn't garcia do that when doesn't garcia do that when he cranks back on that sharpshooter it's weird because if he is picking that like I, I'm not saying you couldn't be right. I, you might. No, I, I mean I don't. I don't think he's like he's trying to copy Danielson because I, th- I think it's like this is just this one match. But yeah, I just thought it was a weird. It was a, it was a weird parallel that I noticed. Yeah, and we we do know. I mean, they outright say on commentary that Danielson is Garcia's favorite wrestler, Graham. So I yeah. mean, it, I I have to imagine Daniel Garcia has seen this match. So yeah, I mean, it could be. I mean, I, there are other wrestlers who do that more, um, yeah. but. I just thought, you know, it was interesting. Speaking of the half crab, there was one point on commentary where Prezak mentioned that Lance Storm was, quote, considering coming out of retirement to challenge Danielson for the belt. And the, and that, you know, he does a promo at the end of the DVDs, uh, alluding to something similar, but like that matches in a week. So hopefully he was doing more than considering at this point. Like, yeah, it's three DVDs away, but it's only one week away in real time. And I just thought that was interesting. But like, um, but yeah, and so like eventually the match does pick up a few times at the end. You know, they, they do hit some big moves. Um, Kenta holds Danielson in a camel clutch while Marafuji gets this like momentum back and forth. It hits a running drop kick in Danielson's face. Um, when Joe gets the, Joe takes a lot of abuse on the apron in this match. Like, he's just standing on the apron and like, Kenta kicks him in the face and takes him to the outside. Marafuji attacks him. Like, Joe is just really getting, uh, you know, repeatedly attacked on the apron until finally, dramatically, Danielson hits a roaring forearm and tags in Joe. And Joe does a good hot tag. He does a big belly to belly on Marafuji. Bunch of kicks to Kenta. Inverted atomic drop and a big kick and a senton on Kenta while yelling motherfucker as he drops on him for a two count. Really good hot tag. But then things settle down again. You know, Danielson comes back in. Um, Joe does the power bomb into the STF and what on Marafuji while Danielson is sort of like running interference by like trying to stop Kenta from getting into the ring, which I thought was a, a nice spot. Um, then Joe holds Marafuji so Danielson could hit a diving headbutt. They do the, they do the roll up sequence with Danielson and Marafuji just like they did in the title match and you know, the exact cradle that Danielson pinned Marafuji in, but this time Marafuji kicks out. I like that. Um, they do so. Marafuji does the Shiranui, which is the sliced bread number two, and Danielson does the exact thing he did with Alex Shelley, where he rolls through into the cattle mutilation. So like it was like, oh, 
Not only is this move not Danielson's weakness, it's the exact opposite of his weakness. He has the perfect counter for it. But then uh, Marafuji hits another one and actually gets it and gets a two count. Um, then Joe and Kenta battle outside while Marafuji hits the coast-to-coast drop kick on Danielson. And Marafuji goes for the super Shiranui off the top rope. Um, but Danielson escapes that, hits the belly-to-back superplex. And they're both down. Joe and Kenna make their way back to the apron. Both guys make the big hot tags. And so Kenna hits another big boot to Joe. Big running kick. Kenta hits his kick combo and the springboard drop kick for a two. Kenta hits the tornado throat drop over the top rope and a big jumping clothesline for two. Hits Goes for a falcon arrow, but Joe just drops him on his face, goes for the muscle buster. Marafuji breaks that up. Kenta hits his big, like, slaps and kicks, and Joe comes back with slaps of his own, and Kenta hits a big kick to the head, and then Joe takes him down with a big clothesline, which, so I think that was, like, the most substantial sequence the two of those guys had. Of course, the crowd goes nuts when they're finally down, and I don't know. I don't know how, if you could watch that, I don't know how you don't want to see those two wrestle in a singles match. Um, but Danielson's back in. He starts kicking away at Kenta, and the ROH... ROH team takes turns chopping Kenta. I feel like there's a little bit of momentum loss at this point. There's an interesting spot like Danielson, he calls Joe over to help him attack Kenta. And Joe just goes over to the apron and he sees Danielson calling him. And I don't know what he says to him, but basically he says like, no, I don't know. Did you notice that? Yeah, I I don't know. Like to me, I guess that was their dissension because there's, yeah, there, that moment is Danielson like calls him like Joe had just tagged out after you know, taking some abuse and Danielson's like, get back in Joe, like do a double, some double teams with me. And like, Joe does like one little thing. And then he goes on the, uh, back to the apron. And then Danielson keeps like, come on, Joe, do more stuff. And Joe's just like, won't do it. And to me, I guess I thought that was, I don't know how um, intentional. I thought the story of that was basically that just like Joe was too hurt and Danielson's going to get a little pissed off because like he wants Joe to keep helping him. But, Joe's not going to come out anymore. Yeah, I couldn't tell because it was so understated that I was almost like, oh, maybe like they just had an actual miscommunication and Joe was like, no, no, we're not doing that spot. You know, something like that. That's almost how I interpreted it. But yeah, it could have been either thing, either way. But anyway, Danielson continues to work over Kenta. He gets the cattle mutilation, then flips into that cattle mutilation cradle. Kenta kicks back. I mean, uh, Kenta kicks out. Danielson goes for the chicken wing. Kenta escapes that, but Danielson hits the regal plex for a two count. And Marafuji breaks that up, but Joe throws him to the outside and hits the elbow suicida. Then Danielson goes up to the top. Kenta leaps up, hits the super falcon arrow for a two count. Kenta goes for the go to sleep. Danielson turns that into a crucifix for a two. Then goes right into the big elbows. But Kenta picks Danielson up out of that position and hits the go to sleep. Gets the win. Like, yeah, there were slow parts in the middle, but I don't know if you heard me describe that last sequence. It lasted a long time, and it was very exciting. So I thought this was a great match. Um, yes, maybe disappointing in that maybe you would think these guys would have like one of the greatest matches of all time, and this was not that. But it was a damn great match, and one of the best matches in ROH so far this year. Um, you know, I, you know, definitely to me more than four stars. I don't know exactly what I'd rate it, but it would be over four stars. Yeah, for me, I, I one thing I do agree with the Dave Live notes is. I, I I agree that this is I would put this match on the level of Jack and Roddy and the Briscoes, but for obviously a completely different kind of match. I would give this like four and a quarter. I think this is great. Um, 
I, but I agree with you. It is not a match of the year contender. And it's one of the, you know, these guys are so good. This is the rare kind of match where like a match could be this good and you're still slightly, you know, just great and be a slightly disappointed because yeah, like you said, these guys have it in them. You would think to have it, like a match of the year, all match of the couple years. Yeah. Time. And I will just reiterate, this was definitely better on tape than it was live. Like it was fairly disappointing live and then you watched it back and i was like oh damn like this they do they do a lot this was kind of awesome you know see we're always talking about expectations and because i read those reviews before i watched the match of like um the crowd kind of the match losing some of the crowd like i my expectation was the crowd was really gonna be quiet for this i didn't feel like the crowd ever at least watching on tape ever turned on this match like i felt they were always popping they were always invested but i did feel like as it got on the match again it was another one of those matches that had that bit of that vibe where some spots late as the match went on it got to a point after probably like 20 or something minutes in where i felt like some things that i felt should have gotten a bigger reaction kind of if, if something should have gotten an eight out of ten reaction in my mind it was getting like a six like it did feel like maybe the crowd was just kind of like getting a little burnt out or maybe period on the whole show i don't know yeah and i do think that no- that weird noise kind of hurt it yeah, a little I, bit I, re- I really do like it's kind of weird to say but i i actually think that but i thought this was a great match obviously just really really well done but yeah and, and we t- talked about the start the, the highlights of this match are joe versus kenta and they're really the story of the match because right from the start of the match you know before well, i mean before the start of the match they won't even sh- everyone will shake each other's hands except joe and kenta won't shake each other's hands so they're building up that tension right from the start and kenta is just classic kenta here for people that don't know like younger kenta he was just such a surly little prick and in this match even as a babyface like you know you 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 t- went over the spots but like there are t- spots in this match where when kenta tags in he will just immediately run and attack and cheap shot joe as he's standing on the apron as the illegal man like and joe will become furious like kenta is just gonna is, you know kenta the story of this match is kenta and joe hate each other and kenta's gonna like stick it to joe however he can and um there are points in this match where, you know, Kenta maybe is bordering on two stuff. Like, there is a roundhouse kick he throws to Joe that catches Joe, like, in the face. He slaps him super hard in the face, and that seems to bring it out of Joe to come back at him with it. Um, I didn't even think that, the, yeah, there are slow parts of this match where, you know, Danielson and Marafuji are both play the face. They're, they're the guy getting worked on for the hot tag. And which again points to how much of this match was built around Joe and Kenta, where they're they're never the face in peril in this match. And uh, those sequences, I can see why people would think they slowed down, but I thought the work was always engaging enough. Even those sequences, I was never bored for a minute in this match. Like even those sequences, I thought the work was good enough, and they were tagging the partners were tagging out enough that I was always invested in this match. It, it did not feel like a thirty-three minute match to me. I love the little callbacks Danielson did with the uh, the Shiranui counter, which he did against Alex Shelley. And also, he um, Marafuji kicks out of the cradle that you know he lost to Danielson to at a final battle. Like, so I love the little callbacks. And you know, they hit a lot of their big stuff. So if you just came to see them hitting their big stuff, like the coast to coast drop kick, the go to sleep, the, the the jumping on the ape on the top rope doing the super falcon arrow like if you just came because you wanted to see kenta and marifuji do like their signature stuff live you got to see 
a lot of their big stuff. But as a match, I thought was really good too. It just, yeah, does miss that match of the year level. There are points of this match that do kind of feel like more of the, like just we're an exhibition dream match as opposed to like, like Kenta, it's hard to explain, but like Kenta Kobashi and Samoa Joe did not feel like an exhibition dream match. It felt like something special. Like it felt when they were wrestling, like it was the most important match in the world. This doesn't quite have that feeling. It's more of that kind of disconnected dream match, even with the Joe Kenta emotion. But I still thought this was great. And, um, yeah, just, uh, I'm just looking at my notes, but, uh, yeah, there's only so many super lattos I can throw at this match. Anyway, after the match, the crowd gives another standing ovation on commentary. Prazak wonders if, if that this makes Kenta do for a Ring of Honor world title shot. Uh, Joe shakes Marafuji's hand, but again, he won't shake Kenta's hand even after the match. Joe grabs a bottle of water to try and revive Danielson, who's been selling being completely knocked out from the go to sleep. But when he sees Kenta at the same point as he's grabbing the water, he sees Kenta grabs the Ring of Honor title belt from the ref. And so Joe angrily throws the water bottle at uh, Kenta. He grabs the belt away from Kenta. Kenta's theme goes on and on during this segment, which starts to drive you insane because Kenta's theme is just this one very short loop. <laughs> I'm glad I wasn't the only one who noticed this. It's just like, what time is it? Yeah, that's basically the entire thing. And you hear it like then like a hundred times. Like it's not like a theme song where it's three minutes long. You go, oh, the song's starting again. It's like a 20 second loop that is, or if, if that, that just goes and goes and loops. But anyway, Kenta uh, grabs the mic and he says, what's up, New York City? I can promise one thing. I'll be back soon. Thank you. And then Joe grabs the mic and says, Kent has to remember one thing, that he's never beaten Danielson in singles matches, and Kent is sure as hell is never going to beat Samoa Joe. Joe then calls Kenta a bitch and leaves, and then Kenta in the great comeback. After just saying very pretty, pretty damn good English, that last little spiel, Kent grabs the mic and goes, Hey, Joe, I can't understand English. <laughs> yeah, that, that that was a great comeback, yeah. Yeah, and, and the crowd chants for Kenta, and he finally, after a few minutes here, recovered Danielson, gets up, he shakes Marafuji and Kenta's hand. So again, they're really selling your – again, everything about this would make you think they're building to a Kenta-Joe singles match because they're really selling this idea of, you know, Danielson's fine with these guys. It's Joe that has the real problem with Kenta. Like, they can't stand each other. And – um but yeah, we never get that. But we do get the three-way. Yeah, and that match has its problems, which we will talk uh, about. Oh yeah, I have to assume that was basically Gabe Goring. This is the closest I can get to that. So yeah, exactly. Um, we cut to so Lance Storm backstage again somewhere because it wasn't at this show. Lance says Brian Danielson has an open contract for the Ring of Honor World Title, and that's a match that could get him out of retirement. So better get in there quick because <laughs> you don't have much time to train, man. <laughs> Yeah, speaking to what Matt said earlier, you know, we're... Literally seven days after this. (laughs) Um, And then finally in the last segment, we cut to the embassy of Jimmy Rave, Alex Shelley, and Prince Nana backstage. Nana's furious over Bruce Leroy. Shelley asks why his plane ticket for February 11th was canceled, which was unscripted too. Rave wonders, what does it matter? Shelley didn't win against Danielson when they did actually wrestle anyway. Shelley points out he only lost to a cradle while Rave got beat to a bloody pulp when he faced Danielson. Rave points out that he was never submitted nor was pinned in that match. He says, I got screwed in that match while you got beat and you got beat again tonight. 
Ray points out Shelly, then uh, Shelly points out, hey, you got beat too tonight. The two start really arguing when Nana tells them to cut the camera, and we get our typical from the Milestone series to be continued dot, dot, dot graphic. So teasing some dissension between the two. And it's, it's, I like that, that they're trying to, you know, sell that, you know, they're trying to make a story out of the idea that, oh, Alex Shelley didn't make Unscripted 2, not because, you know, TNA forced him to pull from the show, but because Jimmy Rave canceled his plane ticket. So. Yeah, I, um, that, I don't think they really go so much further with that. No. Because Shelley isn't around for much longer. Yeah, he, he, he's on his way out. But either way, that was Best in the World. The original, obviously, Bring of Honor would run this name multiple times, but this was the original Best in the World. And, um, you know what? I was thinking watching this, by the end of the show, I was thinking, you know, we, we saw a show on this, this year called Tag Wars. In some ways, I would call this, this show almost the Tag Wars because even though it was only headlined by two tag matches, those are two huge tag matches. They take when you add in entrances and post match, probably over an hour of this three hour show. They were both great. They were two of the better tag matches I think we've seen in Ring of Honor up to this point. Like this really was a show where between those two matches and the Jimmy Jacobs, Jimmy Loves Lacey, you know, all, music video like to me this is a home run show just based on those three segments like there's lots of other stuff on the show that i think is also good but not special stuff that you liked even more than me but i think those three things alone those two main event matches and the jimmy jacobs music video like instant recommend right from that yeah i um yeah i definitely like the undercard a lot more than you to the point where like i would say Wrestling match quality, consistency wise, in turn, and, and like when you account for the peaks, like the best matches, this, and I'm not saying overall with every, if you in factor everything that makes a wrestling show good, but just that alone, this might be the best ROH show like we've ever reviewed so far. Like, in terms of like, mo- like the level of match quality for each match plus the quality, like the high points of the main yeah. events. Like, I, I think it might be. Like, so when Gabe Sapolsky started hyping this, when he was watching the raw footage, he said this was better than Manhattan Mayhem. I do not think overall it was better than Manhattan Mayhem, because that match had, that show had like pacing and storylines and heat and like a flow to it and, and like a through line. And, you know, yeah. setting, you know, being yeah. their first show in Manhattan. Right. Like- the atmosphere. And like that, it was super consistent match-wise too. Maybe even a little bit more consistent than this, but... The best matches on this were definitely better than the best matches on that. And I think that the undercard, for me, was close to as good. So, you know, I know you didn't like the undercard as much as I did, so like maybe that's not true for you. But I think this this really does hold up as one of the better ROH shows we've reviewed. The only thing that's holding it back from me actually like just like completely committing to that is it did feel like it obviously wasn't a B show, right? Like it had like a huge, yeah. huge, huge main event, but it didn't feel super eventful either. You know what I and mean? The, and the two great matches on top, they're not really like I guess they're not matches it, that were built to. Yeah, yeah. The, the strong Evans, I mean the strong and and Evans versus Briscoe's tag, you could say is kind of building to strong Aries versus the Briscoes. But yeah, there wasn't really any build up to that. And the Marafuji Kenta tag is building to Kenta Danielson stuff down the line, and it is building to, when they come back to New York, that Joe Kenta Danielson three-way. But even that one, like, going to your point, 
because it feels so Kenta Joe centric and we never get that singles match watching it back now with hindsight, it does feel almost like a little aimless because it's like, it's almost like some of the Joe Loki segments we saw a year or two before where it's like we watching back now, we know they're kind of teasing things we're never going to get to see. Yeah. So in some ways, like this obviously is not even close to a B show, but like maybe you can make the case that it's an A minus show. And, you know, that would be the only thing holding it back for me saying this is like a high contender for like best ROH show so far, because I think we're going to see shows, the next few shows that we review are going to be like big, big, big shows that are also at least as good as this one, maybe better. Um, so whatever um, distinction this show gets for match quality, which is real, like it's a great show. Yeah. Um, I think it will kind of be blown out of the water within a week of this show taking place. <laughs> Poor show. But- it, just, it just was in a, in a weird position. Because it's right before the biggest weekend in ROH history. Well, well, kind of the show is kind of in a way just like you were saying earlier with the uh, Jack and Roddy versus Briscoe's match, which is it's kind of state of the art or like hitting a new level for its time, and, it will and then it's obsolete old. a week later. Yeah, yeah. So in a way, the whole show is like that. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think. Um, but you know, and I also think you make it go. Even though I'm not quite as high on the undercard as you, I think you describe it really well, which is. We've seen a lot of Ring of Honor shows that had like one or two great matches, but then the undercard's kind of up and down. And we've seen some shows like Manhattan Mayhem where like the, it, it, it maybe doesn't have that one, although I think we might disagree on that, but like that one match of the year level, super great match, but like it's just consistently- which, which was your, which was your match of the year on that show again? Was that the tag title match? Maybe I, I, I don't, I don't think that there's a, like a match of the year contender on that show, but it's like, Good up and down the card, like very good up and down the card. Definitely, but, but still like, my going, still my favorite ROH show, so I'm not knocking it. Yeah, like, but like going to your point, this was a show where you did get like even the sh- even I, someone that's down on it, like nothing on the show is bad, and there's a lot of good. And so you got like a real consistent undercard, and then you also get the two great matches on top. Like so, you kind of get the best of both worlds in that sense. So yeah, exactly that, that. Yeah, that's sort of what I was going for. Yeah. Yeah, that, 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 that's, you know, to get both together, cause the, you know, it's not just the consistently good or the really high end on top. It's, it's both. Yeah, that makes it best in the world, perhaps. And okay. this is why people love 2006 ROH, cause we're gonna get this way more often. Like, I was surprised watching in 05 how not, how infrequently yeah. that sort of thing took place, where you got the consistent, real consistent undercard plus the great top matches. I think, 2006 is kind of known for is it combines what was good about 2004 and what was good about 2005 and kind of takes it to another level you know i don't know if that will bear out but like this show is a good sign that it might yeah and yeah that makes that's really it's really exciting bodes well for uh the next few shows but plugs you want to get in touch with us uh, through the years at gmail.com. That's T H R H for through. We got, again, that great email that tipped us off about the uh, getting into the video wire era of R- Ring of Honor. And uh, Twitter at Trevor Dame at Mayor MGF. And uh, yeah, in, next time on the show, we will be covering the first of Ring of Honor's three shows in their first ever WrestleMania triple shot. That would be Dragon Gate Challenge. The Dragon Gate boys are back. They're in greater numbers than ever before, Matt. It's not the Dragon Gate Ring of Honor-themed 2006 show that people remember, but, you know, it, it should. it's an interesting card. It's got Daniels and Joe on top one more time. 
it'll be real interesting to cover that. We we are now into one of honestly one of the biggest weekends in Ring of Honor history. We will be starting with that next show. So should be a blast. Until next time, have a good time. Have a great time. <laughs>